Now, fuck you with all due respect. Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard All Due Respect. And this is their track, Delusion of Knowledge. They got a tape. It's coming out on Days and Streets of Hate today. Be sure to check them out. Lumpy from Sanction. He does also Days. An amazing thing. The guy also was out for Justice and probably 20 other bands. And be sure to check them out. I can announce this as of today because we announced the show today. The Year of Knife record release party, which we couldn't have because of COVID last year, will take place in Philadelphia July 3rd at Underground Arts featuring Mind Force, Queensway, the first show for all due respect, Age of Apocalypse, and Raw Life. So that show is going to go on sale today. Make sure you check it out. Obviously, Year of the Knife, they only did the um, online gimmick. So did Mind Force. Year of the Knife, Mind Force, Queensway, all first shows back from COVID. All due respects, first show. And obviously, I think this is everybody's first show, actually. But it's our first show back in the city of Philadelphia. And come out. It's the day before my birthday, so we're going to be hanging out all night. Hope to see you all. Again, check out that track. Check out the tape, All Due Respect, the new band out. Very always happy to have new bands to play for you guys. And I appreciate Lumpy and the guys letting us put this one out there as the debut. We're going to be really busy with shows. Obviously, I shouted out the Year of the Knife show just because that's the announcement. And I'm going to tell you, if you're sleeping on Madball, you got to get your ticket now. Sunday, June 27th. Madball, Dead Before Dishonor, Cruel Hand, Hangman, MH Chaos is our first East Coast show, Hesitate, now with our boy Jack from No Option in it, it's a Sunday matinee, doors are at 3 o'clock, in Reading at Club Reverb, they have this awesome back area, it's uh, fully tented, it's going to be really fucking sick, but tickets are almost completely gone, so get your asses on it, you don't want to miss the first show back in Pennsylvania hardcore, also, much love to and she MH Chaos proposed to his girl. Congratulations to the both of you. Can't wait. Hopefully he'll be out there hugging and you know, celebrating in June twenty seventh. Give him a hug when you're out the show. Also, Bob Wilson. This motherfucker, he just puts on these kind of shows that just would never be possible back in the day. This is the Philly Hardcore Barbecue two point five. Couldn't make it happen with the two last year, so he's making up for a big time. Carried by six, chemical fix, fixation, gridiron, hesitate, Jesus peace, killing me, life's question, not one truth, off the tracks, one step closer, payback, reign of salvation, raw brigade, raw life, shackled, simulacra, spirit flaw, struck nerve, July 10th, Sellersville, PA, at the VFW. Now this is where it gets crazy. It's $2 if you're there for the first band, which will be the almighty payback. And 10 bucks if you missed them. And for those of you who were at the last show at the uh, Bold Over Church, Quakertown, that was fantastic in 2019. Um, come out and really actually support the scene. Support the people who are in the pit, up on stage, and vice versa. It's one of the most beautiful things I think about this whole thing is that half the crowd was in bands. Everybody was going love and support. Mikey Balfalco was in 48 of the bands that played last time. I think he's only in two or three this time. 
Big shout out Bob once again for pulling all the Philadelphia bands together. And for those wondering, why is in Sellerville? If you don't know about that place, if you never heard about the Hood Show, and you didn't see Nails like 10 or 11 years ago, then you're missing out. But this venue's actually inside. The venue's cool as fuck, and it's awesome that Bob's pulling this one together. So support. Three shows, three weekends, and we got way more coming. Support your fucking scene. I don't care if you don't like the band. It's the first shows back. Give these bands, give these promoters some love for sticking their neck out and doing the right thing and trying to bring hardcore back. One last thing they said, we're working on more stuff. I switched over to Reaper, which is why this sounds better. However, it is not possible for me to recover some of this Audacity stuff. And so I have to re-record a shit ton of things. And so I'm a little back. But if you do want to support us with via Patreon, it's patreon.com slash this is hardcore. Also, for all these shows, we have everything up on phchshows.com. You can check out, you can get links, all the stuff you need all at one spot. So, support. Now, we've talked about Eddie Sutton a few times in regards to his chemo treatment and his fight for cancer. And it's not hard to figure out that Leeway is probably one of my all-time favorite hardcore bands. You know, being from the thrash metal world into death metal and then hearing hardcore and then understanding that there's a crossover hardcore, Leeway just was always the fucking shit to me. And I always tell a funny story about in 2006, Leeway was getting ready to do some show and I got a hold of Eddie and we talked on the phone. He basically grilled me with an interview and it was fucking crazy. But at the same time as, yo, props to him. Them fucking bands were getting robbed. He doesn't know who the promoters are. And, you know, to be fair, in 2006, if it wasn't for Sean Agnew and R5 Productions, the first is hardcore never would have happened. So we didn't make it happen in 2006. But many times over, Eddie has been a guest in Philadelphia as part of This Is Hardcore and just come to hung out. And the longer and the more often that I get to hang out with him, just learn so much about his true character and his adversity and ability to fight through addiction. And not only that, but to continue and to go on to continue to create music, not only just as Leeway and NYC, but also as Truth and Rights, Many times we played Sociopath, the track from Truth and Rights, and I feel like a lot of people in Eddie's position in hardcore may have taken a backseat or may have stepped back and been like, well, leeway's over, fuck it. And I feel like, especially in the 2008, 9, 10, 11, Eddie was at so many shows and pumping other bands up. It's actually fantastic. And... I'm so glad to be able to speak to him and actually see him. He's doing well, and he talks about his chemo treatments. He talks about a lot of stuff, and this is really a podcast with a lot of candor and a lot of him being open, and I really appreciate when a guest comes on, and as he says, I'm willing to talk about it all, warts and all. So that's what you're getting. This is more of one of our longer ones and one of my favorite, and as I have so much love and a good time talking to him. I hope you guys enjoy this one. So thank you. We are talking to Eddie Sutton of the legendary Leeway. More importantly than anything, 
not only has Eddie become a pioneer and someone within New York hardcore that when some people would play the game, he had the balls to speak out against labels and against the way that the labels and the corporate kind of structure fucked a lot of these bands over when other people were trying to play it straight and just stay in the game. And over the last 35 years, most of what people consider metallic hardcore in some way can be rooted back to Eddie Leeway and the very first demo tape, Be Loud. So I've been telling you guys that he has been dealing with cancer and dealing with chemotherapy, and I'm just so happy to be able to talk to my friend and hear his story. Well, thanks for your time. That being said, when you talked about me uh, coming out with the labels and everything, it's just like the two customs policemen in Scandinavia when they took me in a room for a strip search. I said, you're not going to buy me dinner before you fuck me? <laughs> thanks for having me. Before we get deep into the roots of this whole thing, everybody is concerned about your health, your well-being, and it's great to see you this way. And I've texted you and try to stay in touch with you, but let the world know what's going on, how you're feeling, and what you're going through right now. Well, you're one of the main group of people that have been checking on in with me uh, during this whole situation. And I couldn't be more humbled by the response of so many people you know reaching out I had a hard time catching up with all of them because I'm not on Facebook much but everybody who reaches out to me on Instagram you know I do reply to them it, you don't have to know me you know what I mean just that respect amongst us is is enough that deserves a reply uh, not to get too more, much off in a tangent, I never expected that many people to reach out and send me love. It, it showed me like we were living in 35, 40 years ago, the way the scene I knew that I first started with, even before I joined the band, was a community. And, and to me, it was a beautiful thing. You know, I didn't know that that many people were going to step up, not just reach out. And, and I couldn't be more thankful. It's, it's changed my perspective on a lot of things just over the last five month, months. Should I explain how I found all this out? Yeah, I'd love to hear. And I think people should understand how you're pushing through and surviving this. For the last three weeks of January... I was dealing with excruciating pain in my right arm. And I, like I said, I thought it was just a muscle pull or something like that. So I tried re ignoring it. But then I went up north to New York City uh, for the first week of February to do a paid session with the West Coast band that wanted me to uh, do something with them. And I, the night of the 4th, I started coughing up a significant amount of blood. And Joe, I'm not talking about just a little bit of blood that was in the trail of my phlegm or spittle. I was coughing up like two, four ounces. And I knew I had to go into a hospital 
and get an x-ray, especially after I spoke to one of my doctors. And they took me right in once I explained I was coughing up blood and was having difficulty breathing. And they gave me an x-ray right away. And I wasn't even in the ER an hour when the doctor came back to me and said I have a malignant mass in my right lung. Um, but right after that, she said, but it's treatable. So it, it gave me confidence. It, it helped me not to worry and fear that this was how I was going to go out now when I feel in life, uh, not just with music and wanting to do an autobiography and a podcast, but, you know, I've been blessed with, uh, a family other than my immediate family and I didn't want to lose the opportunity to see all that go down so this was at Nassau University Medical Center I was in there for a week but I wound up after taking a fall one night and catching myself with my arms I was in more excruciating pain in my right arm my sisters convinced me to go to NYU Langone, which is on the east side of 33rd Street, and it's the second best cancer hospital in the U.S. Wow, wow. And, and everything's been working since then. The radiation treatment, after another week in the hospital, has done a phenomenal job. Uh, I can't even tell you about the brain specialist that did the uh, radiation treatment on my brain because I had a dozen lesions in my brain that could have become tumors and malignant as well. And then I would have been really fucked. If I put this off for another six months, if I wasn't in such pain with my arm, I wouldn't be in the shape to be sitting here talking to you because it probably would have been too late. Now, I remember in the beginning of this year, you were on the Hoya podcast. You recorded the Hoya podcast before you found out? Yeah, I recorded with him just before the holidays. Because I go up to New York like almost every month to work on something in the studio. And uh, we did each other's podcasts within a 48-hour period. And this was before I went back home and started dealing with a lot of pain because that that was definitely after New Year's, but during that first week before my arm started really hurting like a bastard. I would just get it, you know, the reason of it is because the mass was leaning on the main nerve and artery to my right arm. So I would feel it from underneath my armpit all the way down to my elbow before my uh, forearm, and and that that was just as painful as when you know I was sleeping, sitting up in two thousand and six when I had the halo and the broken neck. You know. Wow. Now I know. Um, beforehand we were talking about doing the show. For those of you listening, Eddie has his own podcast, and. Not only has he had people like Hoya, but he's looking to branch out 
and expose the world to more than just your average hardcore fare from a podcast. And um, I obviously, with what's going on now, have you been getting back to recording and stuff, right? Yes, we're, we're going to have steady format, hopefully from this point on. I, you know, I started out where I wanted to hear the stories of people, whether they were hitting rock bottom and they finally rose above and beyond that and had what you would call a happy ending and were striving in life. Uh, definitely during the last few months leading up to the election, I was being a little too political when I didn't have a guest. And from there, now I am trying to have more of my friends on talking about the past, good or bad, warts and all. And uh, soon, I already finished the episode. I talk with a detective sergeant in homicide down south. And uh, I'm soon to have another guest uh, whose name is Nako Nolan, Nako Nolan. B.C. Sanders was the guy I just did recently, but of course, because of his job, we had to do him anonymously, so it's it's a black screen, but you could hear him talk, and he's a hardcore fan, you know, one of the first shows he went to as a kid was seeing me with the Bad Brains in the 89 tour, Holy shit. and Nako Nolan, he was a beat cop in downtown LA, LA. Uh, became part of the gang task force and is now retired. He's done a few documentaries. Um, he's on that documentary about Lisa Liu uh, from the Cecil Hotel, the girl that wound Oh, yeah, yeah, we watched that. Yeah, he's in the beginning, in the first episode of the first 30 minutes, but there's a lot more stuff that's out there that he's been a part of. And, you know, he does uh, BJJ. He has uh, a female friend who also is still on the job. And I'm trying to connect with these people, too, because they were part of our scene before they made a choice in their adult lives to go the route that they went. And, you know, whether you're a fuck-the-police type of person or not, you know, these people are human and you know they're trying to keep people safe it's not just being uh, a bad guy with a badge all the time you know and even with like... all my shit i still have respect for some cops so long as they're not a douchebag what you were just talking about where like when they were a part of hardcore scene i feel like the longevity of your career has lended you the opportunity to meet so many different people because you have transcended just not just a short window where, oh, Lee, Leeway was only popular from like 84 to 89. I mean, you guys are world known and you guys travel pretty well. So I'm sure there's some interesting characters that have come across your path and you've got to know. And everyone wants to hear hardcore stories, but I think as a podcast listener myself, sometimes it's, the off the beaten path 
guest on a random podcast that I find more interesting than another interview with Ian McKay or Henry or whatever. Well, that's probably because Philly and New York, you know, are parallel to each other. Uh, the same things go on in both scenes. Uh, so that makes us more common brothers than, say, other scenes because the West Coast, of course, is more opposite than we are. They're more punk hardcore than we are direct hardcore, you know. Um, a lot of them didn't grow up early on, like in the throes of street and hip-hop, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like 100 miles, it's just traffic that fucks us. <laughs> yeah, you go over the Verrazano in Brooklyn from Bay Ridge, and you're only 90 minutes away, in honesty. Uh, Isaac was on the show calling us the Sixth Borough. The Sixth Borough. <laughs> well, you should be the Fifth Borough. A lot of people don't even give Staten Island respect. You know, that's like Mafia Town for the last 30 years because they've all migrated there out of Brooklyn, you know. Bensonhurst was so rooted in La Cosa Nostra that most of the people that grew up into that life moved on to Staten Island. It's kind of like, uh, you know, cops and firemen who moved to the suburbs of Jersey or Long Island, you know. Mobsters go to Staten Island. <laughs> now, let me ask you this. You were born in New York, but you were spent a couple years out in Long Island, but you came back to Queens, right, at like the golden hour like 1980, 79, is that, how, is that how your story worked out? Yeah, um, I remember after first grade, we moved out to Long Island. Uh, I was out there several years. I moved back literally the same night John Lennon was shot and killed, which is like December 5th, 1980. Okay. And I was introduced to hardcore uh, in the new year. Yeah, I always wondered who, because um, you lived back in Queens, right? What part of Queens did you move back yeah. to? Uh, same place I was born and raised in Astoria. Oh, yes. We have so many guests that have actually been from Astoria or talk about Astoria. And it seems like that's like the crossroads where so much New York hardcore was birthed from. So how, who did you run into or what did you run into in Astoria that got you to know what New York hardcore was? Well, actually, in the beginning, because... Uh, I guess we had the common ground of roller hockey and some shit. Ernie Parada and John Steigerwald, who started Gilligan's Revenge and eventually turned into Token Entry. And they gave me more or less the first opportunity to write songs for a hot minute. I was going to join the band, but another guy who became a U.S. Marshal by the name of John Pappas was their first singer. And then they had another wannabe gangster that eventually moved to Las Vegas called John Wood. And, um, God, I think there was somebody else, but then eventually it was Anthony from Raw Deal and then Timmy Chunks. But without getting lost, Kraut was the only band from Astoria before so many bands came out of there. You also had the mob. Ralphie. You know, and... Uh, you know, so a lot of bands 
became influenced by those first four, five years of New York hardcore being a scene because early 80, a lot of the guys like Steve Poss, rest, rest in peace, RIP. and Jimmy from Murphy's Law, and a lot of older cats that are no longer with us or just MIA or, you know, are going through their own period in life, positive and negative. Um, they had a lot to do with bringing us up. And those first four years of the 80s was definitely more a punk vibe before the crossover thing really started influence, influencing the bands and contributing to better musicianship and sound, you know? Were you exposed to a tape, or were you? They just say, "Hey, these are the bands, and we're we'll go to a show." Like, what was your, what was your actual first uh, interaction with the actual sound itself of hardcore? I would say Kraut and the Bad Brains, in no certain order. I was kind of turned on to them in the same day, and you know, a lot of Cali bands because they were getting much more recognition than us. Yeah, Dead Kennedys and such, right? And uh, of course, Minor Threat. You know, I, I remember hearing the stories how Ian would come down with their boys with one of the bands that were on a bill from, like, say, the Peppermint Lounge and, uh, you know, how the dance floor was so fucking wild. And, and before I even knew what hardcore or punk was, I did see Fear on Saturday Night Live and watching all the skinheads doing their thing and shit. I was very transfixed by that. And so when I was being introduced to hardcore, it was really making sense. It was all coming together to me, you know, because, uh, you know, I may have heard new wave bands, you know, I always listened to rock and metal. Um, I was very influenced by hip hop throughout the eighties. Um, and, and even some of those bands that maybe people think were gay, like, you know, the B-52s or, or some of the other bands that were trying to uh, be a part of mainstream and not part of, like, the underground scene, you know. So it was a mishmash of so many different styles for me. Yeah, I was actually wondering, before you found Hardcore, what was actually, was it old school stuff in your house, like, were... What were you listening to before you had that first, like, tinge of, like, the hardcore? Was it, like, the old doo-wop Italian stuff? What was it at home? And then how did it feel when you started hearing this crazy shit? Um, I have to confess, my mom was turning me on to R&B. Mosey, uh, Izzy Brothers and Motown Sounds. Yep. Yeah, Major Harris, uh, all of that stuff. But also... Um, you know, show tunes. <laughs> My mom watched a lot of musicals. I can understand that. A lot of Barbra Streisand. You know, my dad, uh, because he was one foot in the life and also a film editor for WOR-TV when they were still in the Empire State Building, he was listening to a lot of rock and underground shit. You know, that's why uh, as a goof, uh, before the 80s were over, we would play the song 
Hocus Pocus by Focus. Do you know that song? No, I'm not familiar. It's like a one side of the album. And it, that was the riff. But the vocals would come in and go, but it had such a riff that went with the band that it was a headbang, even though it was corny as shit. But isn't that part of heavy metal and yeah. hard rock anyway? There's always something kitschy or goofy about it, but you still dig the fucking riffs. Don't, <laughs> don't deny it. Now, at any point before you wanted to be in a band, did you ever try to sing? Were you in school singing? Or was your first attempt at singing with that clear vocals just organic and not anything that was uh, taught to you? I was good in school until high school. So I was on a roll kid at the end of my elementary years. So there were three things I wanted to be in life. A lawyer and possibly president one day. Go figure, right? Me. <laughs> a baseball player or a singer. You know, and uh, I always tried to sing to the music at home as well as what I was being influenced and in growing up with from school. And, uh, you know, by the time I came back to New York, you know, as much as I was being turned on to this shit, you had the police ghost in the machine, Van Halen's fair warning, and, uh, you know, a lot of interesting R&B was coming out from that point, too. A lot of stars from that field and genre were trying to reinvent themselves into dance music because the disco era was, was dead in the water, you know. So a lot of people trying things and they were failing or pulling it off. And then we still had great rock bands that were writing great songs like a lot of the 70s artists, you know. A lot of people feel that musicianship has regressed over the years, especially with electronic music, you know. I mean, you could see it just in the way that bands are structured now and the simplicity of recording has lost some musicianship. I watched the whole entire YouTube movie. It's a, probably a documentary where they were talking about the end of session musicians. And it's pretty incredible if you look back on how some of the recording artists of the 40s, 50s, and 60s would go in with a tune, and it was actually like the label sessionist that would play it. Like the and Wrecking think, Crew out of California. There was a, that's exactly who it covered. And, it, and it's pretty incredible to think that there was a half dozen to two dozen folks who were responsible for such a giant amount of commercial music at that time frame. And then little by little, that kind of dissipated. And uh, as you look at, you said uh, disco. Disco, I mean, you had some bands, like my mom grew up on Earth, Wind & Fire. She had us in the Parliament of Funkadel. Forget about them. They, yeah, they might have had 13 or 14 guys, but little by little, as you said about the new wave stuff, you're down the since one or two people, there's a and then if you could take that was at the beginning of the eighties all the way up to now, you could do all the stuff that a simple four or five person band can do with a simple machine the size of our cell phone. 
So I'm not surprised the musicianship has changed just because the nature of organic writing is gone, you know? Yeah, fun fact, when the Bee Gees were huge in the later half of the 70s, they redid the Sgt. Pepper movie. And you have Earth, Wind, and Fire almost back-to-back with Aerosmith. Now, you know, Tyler and Perry were wrecks at that point in their careers, but they still did a good job of come together. Uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire did got to get you into my life. And, you know, they, Earth, Wind, and Fire had a great horn section, but they also had a fat lead guitar player. It wasn't just about uh, Maurice White being the band leader and uh, Bailey being the falsetto singer. You know, they were capable of doing a lot of different things in music. Today's music, the, the only simple thing I could say is it seems like it's more about image and materialism than it really is about getting down and, and talking real. I'm not going to diss everybody because some people are really trying to achieve that but uh, and, and can, but, you know, it just seems like everything behind it musically is just fabricated. It doesn't run on feeling, you know. Uh. Yeah, it's definitely flat. There's a lot of homogenization of sounds. And I think because of the speed in which the whole world moves, what was yesterday is old and what is tomorrow is, you know, barely, oh, yeah, that's cool because right away next week there's a whole new record out that's going to transcend and beat that. Whereas, you know, like at least the period that I grew up in and the period you're talking about, you know, records dominated for months, sometimes a year if it was that big, you know? Yeah. And I, and I think that the people now, because they're not in the analog world, they're not physically purchasing tapes or vinyl, and they're not going through the lyric sheets. It's just a button they click on, they absorb it, and then they move forward, you know? Yeah, David Bowie, his last two releases before he died, I think they only breached 100,000 in sales Wow. After two weeks where, you know, um, that was unheard of back in the day. You know, you did have bands like uh, 87, Guns N' Roses, uh, over that year being on the Rolling Stone Top 100 or Billboard Top 100 and achieving 12 million plus sales. Uh, you know, it, it's so hard to sell a record even for mainstream people nowadays because of the access to the songs online and being bootlegged. You know, I always felt in hardcore, though, even to sell your own record, you literally had to go up to a kid, crack him in the fucking head, and take 15 bucks from him and give him your CD. <laughs> you know, and then he would still take it home and 15 kids would copy it, you know, and not buy the record. But it seems like that's gone full circle now. You know what I mean? It's not just our thing, but it's it's mainstream as well. You know, does anybody know how many records The Weeknd sold? I have no idea. I um, looking at the way you just laid this out. Did you think one of these things, such as there were people? as like in the stimulators who weren't really calling it hardcore it was considered like loud fast. Did you hear that term? And when you first found hardcore, were you like, 
I'm a hardcore kid or you just thought it was more like punk. And then as you learn more about these different bands, were you just saying like, this is so fucking awesome and I don't even want to be a part of what the kids in my high school were up to. Like, where was your mindset in relation to where you stood in the scene and mainstream music as a whole? Well, I felt like I wasn't a hundred percent hardcore because I listened to metal. Like that's how I felt uh, the need, like you needed to be completely dedicated to this or, you know, you weren't 100%. Like I never wore docks because I, I never felt like a complete skinhead. And if I wasn't walking the walk and talking the talk, I would get my ass handed to me and somebody would take them, you know. So I was basically the big shaved skinhead with $100 sneakers on, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, you know, even before Leeway, uh, there was a pub another block away in Astoria where I was doing Grandmaster Flash and other rap covers, you know, to get a couple of you, drinks you and hanging out. Yes. You were like uh, MCing, and there was like somebody scratching? Well, not scratching, but there was a DJ. He would play what tracks I asked him to play, and I would use the uh, instrumental side and do okay. my thing. You know what now, I mean? Now, was that because you ran into this stuff? Like, I mean, obviously with Queens and the connection to the music, like what was your immersion or like exposure to hip-hop? Well, as I was talking about aspiring to be a part of music, this is my way in. I was okay. I was trying to sort out. Well, am I just a metal and rock head, or am I really a part of this other thing, a hundred percent? And that's why it took a few years. You asked about the last uh, loud fast rules um, expression. You saw that up until '84, until the crossover really started kicking in into '85. And then 86, 87, a lot of the key bands were using that sound and musicianship along with their tracks and their newer releases, you know. Um, it just took a while for a lot of hardcore bands to find the musicians from outside this thing of ours, as well as establish their own musicianship because they were still learning and and they weren't all all the way there just yet like you could hear the difference from aj's maturation from the first two demos into born to expire you know you could hear what a tight solid rhythm guitar he became and if it wasn't for mike gibbons being found like many guitar players in queens that spent every weekend at their guitar teacher's place. Um, a lot of them weren't as skillful as Mikey. A lot of them could do every cover and riff. They could play Freebird and they can do these other uh, guitar riffs. But if you ask them to write a fucking song, they would fall on their ass, you know? So yeah, yeah. the thing about hardcore uh, 
to be a new individual helped a lot of the artists, you know, uh, establish themselves. The reason I always tried to grow as a vocalist was because a lot of the vocalists were more direct and yelling and uh, some of them you could actually hear what they were saying versus some of the guys that do the death metal thing and you don't even understand what's going on. Uh, you know, I wanted to carry a tune. I wanted to be an individual and that's what Leeway was. Not every album sounds the same. We, we tried to push the envelope and expand album to album. You know, like we did it right with Born to Expire and Desperate Measures. Uh, we got lost on Adult Crest. It's not a solid beginning to end album. But the one I'm so proud of, at least for my personal performance, was Open Mouth Kiss. You know, I just felt like as a mature adult and someone really trying to uh, establish himself and show his style... That, that, you know, I was able to really get it right with that album after all these years, you know what I mean? Yeah, it was like 11 years after you recorded the Be Loud demo, you know? Exactly. Now, what was the impetus to try to do the Grandmaster Jam Flash um, covers? Was a friend of yours asking you, like, what were you doing that made you think, or how did that even come to pass that you had the opportunity to do that? Just perform and, and have an audience, you know, will I say getting free drinks was part of it? Yes. But, you know, I just wanted to try and see if I would get an applause or, you know, I'd get a drink poured over my head, really. You know what I mean? And again, like I said, I've already found hardcore and started going to shows, but I didn't know if uh, you were allowed to be a little of this and a little of that or whether you needed to be a hundred percent and uh you know i was still trying to understand and find that out that's why by 1984 when we were given our first show by then i knew you know uh where i wanted to go and and that i did want to pursue this music and take an honest stab at it and uh you know we achieved that very lucky who put the original Unruled lineup together? How did that can like uh, start coming to be? Uh, AJ brought two of his Catholic high school friends in. You had Sasso Matroni, who was from the same neighborhood as AJ, and Jose Ochoa, who was further out in like the near Flushing, Queens area, but went to the same high school with them. AJ I knew for a couple of years and would run into him at a couple of A7 shows, if not in the neighborhood. Um, and we always said we were going to work together, and uh, we did, you know, and slowly started building our thing. You know, people started falling out because they couldn't do it as much as AJ and I. Uh, some had to be let go because, you know, they weren't growing as much as me and AJ were together and we wanted to bring in better musicians to basically demonstrate our style and take it to another level. Now, 
were you playing anything in the city or was this stuff out in Queens? Because I seen a flyer for a show with Gilligan's Revenge and the New York Hoods, but it was at the Coventry Club. But you did the Unruled ever play anything like Manhattan, like A7 or anything like that? Not under the moniker. No, no it wasn't until Leeway that you played the city, okay? Yeah, but um, we played, you know, we, we didn't have the Unruled for long. That was really just a quick uh, dust. Oh, it was only a couple shows? Yeah. That was really yeah. It. There wasn't that many flyers to look up, and um, especially after I heard the Hoya episode, I still think the Unruled might be one of the greatest names. Well, fun fact: the Coventry was the same place that Kiss played their first showcase show back in what seventy three. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of like uh, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. We would have all these interesting facts that would have us cross. With infamous people, like we had a Rock Hotel show where David Bowie showed up with Joan Jett. But I was still an ignorant Queens kid and made a disparaging comment about AIDS. And Bowie just got up and left. But some people did ask him what they thought of Leeway. And he said, yeah, they're, they're a real New York band. So at least we got props from them, even though, you know... I turned them off uh, that night. <laughs> that is what it is, right? And it's it's what I do sometimes. I can't help it, you know. <laughs> well, um, are you guys out of you guys are definitely out of high school by the time you go into Don Fury Studio with the demo, right? Yeah. It seemed like that was like the turning point for you guys, though. Like the the Be Loud demo came out, and then you guys were slowly like a fixture. It seems like you guys were on shows upon shows. Uh, it started happening like that, and. Uh, you know, our sound started getting better. We were getting a better following from the matinees at CB's, and we were starting to get out of New York. Uh, one of the first places we really got to play out of was Baltimore. Um, we wound up playing with early DRI, and uh, the kids just flipped out that night for us. We had, uh, that was the Utah Street Clubhouse, E-U-T-A-W. We had to save some white kid who was getting jumped by some others in the neighborhood. And uh, we kind of drove him out of town and let him on his way. You know, it's, it's a lot of those things where we would wind up running with people who were apparent victims and needed a little protection and look out and we would wind up helping them you know yeah it seems like february the demo comes out you guys do that show with articles of faith and corrosion and conformity at cbs which is like how the fuck can you have a better first cb shows than that for your sound right yeah scotty and from anthrax was in the front row and that was the first show that chris williamson saw us after Dougie from Kraut and the Chromegs had him come down to see us, we, we do owe that bit of props and, and promotion from Doug. Um, and then, then I, some people will say it was all downhill from there, but, you know, uh, Chris Williamson did a lot for New York Hardcore, not just with the Rock Hotel shows. You want to cry about money and beat that. Yeah, I'd I, I really like to get in that a bit, but what fucks me up is we just had... Carl Procaro from Breakdown on there. Mm. And I feel like Breakdown and Leeway had somewhat of a similar path versus some of the other New York hardcore bands where 
you guys were playing Connecticut. You guys went down to Baltimore. You were not set in to just be in New York City or like a five-borough band. Where did that first connections outside the city come from for so Leeway could be go beyond just being a CB, CBGB's and LES-only kind of band? Uh, personal aspiration, wanting to get out of town and display our wares, if you will, to other cities and see how it would respond. But, you know, uh, I'll save really what I want to talk about with Williamson. What I can say uh, is there may have been arguments over money and certain bullshit, but he put us in a position to blow away a lot of renowned bands on Rock Hotel shows. And he got us on that quickness tour with the Bad Brains and partially financed it. So whatever claims of some people claiming he ripped us off or he didn't do enough, we could debate that more in the conversation. But it all balanced out with the expense he had to come up with to keep us on that tour. Because that tour was like 12 weeks. The rest of the guys went home as the Bad Brains went to the south, I got to stay on the Bad Brains tour bus. I got the whole experience with them. I consider, you know, Doc um, and Daryl as, as uncles, you know. I may not be as in touch with them today, but it was like a rite of passage going into manhood, even though I was already 24, you know what I mean? I, I really felt that they helped me to become a man, especially in all this, you know, despite what came around not too long after that, you know. If you look at Leeway's career, it feels like some of the people that you mentioned at the very beginning of your hardcore life were always there supporting you and helping you. It's like you can't not look at the internet and find flyers with Leeway Kraut or Leeway's Murphy's Law or Leeway's Cro-Mags and Leeway's Bad Brains. It seems like Leeway was supported by so many people with bands that were established or older than you. And I think that's either just a testament to your playing ability or just the fact that people knew that you guys were onto a sound that was really explosive at the time. Um, I was just looking at some old shows compared to how I performed today. And, uh, you know, I was amazed at how much speed I had on stage compared to now like to nowadays I try to be more uh collective up there uh back then I couldn't sit still and I was pretty much so nervous I was literally going from one side of the stage to the next one side of the stage to the next just because I couldn't calm and ride the song the way I I could ride it today you know not just wind capacity and shit like that. Like, I was just all over the place. And and we became no, notorious. Williamson was propping us up as, like, you know, the co-headliner to some big names. And we would wound up ripping the whole house up. And, you know, um, I'm not trying to say that to be egotistical, but we knew it just by the energy of the audience after we came off stage and, and saw the other bands. You know, like Overkill was one band. They came out, they put up their whole 
you know, backdrop and props with the, you know, with the steel ramps and all that shit. And uh, we just went up there and did ourselves. And they had to get James Hetfield up there during an encore to, to reach the same roar and, and you know, dance live from the audience as we had from beginning to end. But we're the hometown heroes at that time. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, you could see it. You could see what the shows you were playing. I mean, whether it was Voivod, whether it was Nuclear Assault, but then you were still playing shows with like Straight Ahead, Crumb Suckers, even playing shows out in uh, Brooklyn with like Ludacris and stuff. It seems like Leeway was everywhere. That's it. Seems at that point before you guys, when you guys were still releasing like the different demos. Yeah, Ludacris was kind of like uh, we were propping each other up for a while there. And we would book dates in places that wouldn't even book a hardcore show. And maybe we'd draw 20 people, but it was still a gig. You know what I mean? Like, you know, if I don't draw uh, a, a relatively large audience and make my guarantee numbers, whatever, it's still important. It, you know, back in the day, we used to think of them, all right, this is a rehearsal, it's a dress rehearsal. To me, that it, it's, it's much more different now. Like, you still have to be able to capture every individual possible in the room. You know what I mean? Well, what you just said, I want to ask real quick. You said every individual. And something that we've talked about on this show seems like into 87, 88, the hardcore style got more homogenized. But in the period that you're talking about right now, we're talking about 85, 86, when you're between the Be Loud and the Enforcer demos and stuff, there was still a very mixed crop of people coming to hardcore shows, correct? Yeah, yeah. And, and so you specifically had to win each kind of like each group over, right? It depends, depended upon... The event, you know, maybe somebody was going to their very first show from Rock Hotel in the Ritz. Um, and some of them, they already heard hardcore, but they were kids. And this was the first time they were admitted into the club to see a band. And that's a lot of the reason why it's their first show. But then you would have just regular people who kind of went along for the ride just to see what this whole new rave is y'all are cutting your hair and you know wearing boots and braces for you know or, or this whole skater look that doesn't make sense to me let's go see what this is all about so you had those people but you know it's it's also like um playing a club that doesn't really book bands like this if the people that you know, look like glam rockers or regular everyday people are coming up to you and said, yo, that was all right. You know what I mean? You didn't have much of a black community in hardcore. So if somebody came up and said, you know, you killed it from a different community, you know, you realize that, that that was true recognition. And, and you were getting true props from somebody who never really understood, you know, saw this thing, you know, before. Whether it was me or it was a straight edge band 
you know, or was one of the bigger bands that could have played anywhere and still would have gotten 150 and 200 people. Because other than Rock Hotel or some of the other venues that would book the Bad Brains or, or an out-of-state band that had a big draw, you know, you weren't playing to big crowds other than CBs who could fit 400 in that room. You know, without it being above the capacity for the fire department, you know what I mean? I feel like if you if you look at the flyers from that time frame, I don't know if there's a band you didn't play with. And and I'm glad you touched on the size difference because something that Craig ahead had said was like the idea that people have is that every show was packed and chaotic, but there were so many shows in the earlier errors. Where it might have been 50 people in the room. Well, that's like Vince McMahon. Every event is sold to capacity, isn't it? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you you got you to gotta build on the uh, whole legend of it. But no offense, you know what I mean? You know, things might have been a little different because they came in, I guess, going to shows... You know, uh, Craig Ahead was in mayhem with Gordon Nances and yep. Tommy Carroll, you know, even though they may not have been getting as many shows. Uh, the only other band that I saw before 1985 that was able to pretty much pack the Ritz before it was Rock Hotel at the Ritz with suicidal tendencies. They came to New York around 83, and as they played every song, it was all like uh, bridge and tunnel kids who didn't have the suicidal look or the New York hardcore look. And they screamed, screamed and squealed like they were watching the Beatles and they were anticipating every song. Like, wow. you, you know what I mean? And, and it was crazy because here's this band from Frontier who was deemed from like Maximum R and, uh, Rock and Roll as the worst band of the year to the best band of the year. They were number one in both categories. You either <laughs> you, you loved them or hated them. You know what I mean? And... Uh, a lot of that myth that a lot of people built up, to me, you know, doesn't fit straight. Like, if any of the people from the mid to late 80s would tell you today that they were going to be in this place and be on this level of success 35 years later, and they expected this, is full of shit. I don't have to agree with that. I mean, look at this, the organic way that Leeway came out. And unless I'm mistaken, you guys were uh, still ahead of the curve of what they would call crossover. Like, you guys weren't chasing that. That was just an organic thing based upon you guys all enjoying not only hardcore and hip-hop, but also understanding the heavy metal. So you guys didn't wait for someone to set a blueprint. You guys were part of the blueprint, right? Yeah. AJ was just as much of a fan even though he may have been a year or so younger than me. We both related to the same music. And right before 
leeway started, whether, you know, it was unruled, Kill 'Em All came out. And if you listen to that album for the first time, I don't think anybody denies listening to it and saying to themselves, damn, I would love to be in a band with these riffs. You know what I mean? Because can you imagine those riffs with, with uh, the energy of a hardcore band and, and just running with it and, and how the dance floor would be with those breakdowns and shit like that, you know? And this is where hardcore worldwide was going, you know, at least in America, because hardcore is American, you know what I mean? No disrespect to the rest of the world. I love the fact that it's in the corner of every place in the globe today. But, you know, that's why you have bands like XL from the West Coast. And, yeah. and you know, Suicidal had a, had a bit of a metal twinge. It wasn't just like, I saw your mommy and your mommy's dead, you know? Like, it, it wasn't just like fun comical songs and shit like that. They were, they were trying to bring it as well as other bands, you know? Do you think when you were playing the shows with Nuclear Assault, Evoivod, or Overkill, that there was a bit of tribalism, any kind of like mixture of the crowds that didn't go so well, or was the overall vibe like we're into all of these bands? You know, we appreciated each other, but I would get nervous because I really wanted to bring it. You know, uh, even David Bowie said, you know, he was a bit of a, uh, you know, he wasn't really himself. He was a shy guy. That's why it was easy to put on makeup and be something else. You know, I'm, I'm not, I, I may be a scrappy kid or might be able to handle myself in half the fights I've went through in my life, but I've had my ass handed to me. But when you go on stage, don't forget the word performance. So that energy that the crowd gave me helped me to come out of my shell and be this kid that they wish they were because they were probably getting their ass kicked in school or bullied for being into what they were in. You know, a lot of cops were kept kicking kids' asses because they didn't understand punk rock, you know, let alone hardcore. And, um, you know, that riled a lot of people up. And, and by 86, you know, I had wonderful musicians giving me so much to do my part, you know, that we started being, in our eyes, like that Metallica album that had riffs for days. You know what I mean? Like, you know, they inspired me to, to write what I wrote and to perform the way I performed, you know. I can't sit here and act like some ass and said, yeah, I wrote everything. You fucking guys. You know what I mean? I can't do that. You know? No, it definitely, it definitely feels like it was a group effort because there's not anybody else that I can think of that could have some of the rhythms that you have while, while having that clean singing voice. And I think by the time that there's a 
you guys actually put live songs on the second time you guys did the Enforcer demo, right? And that's the that's right before you guys actually signed with Chris Williams. The Enforcer demo was strictly tracks in the beginning. I can't remember how soon after or how long after, but it was a Christmas show. On that weekend, uh, Beastie Boys played with Murphy's Law and somebody else. And then the next night, we opened up for the Bad Brains. You know, my very first Rock Hotel show was GBH. Yeah, that was like the ultimate show. GBH, AF, and, cr- and Crumb Suckers. That's like that's still a flyer I have on my wall. Like I have a whole cardboard of like all old school New York hardcore flyers. So I, 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 I you've been talking about the Rock Hotel because obviously it's connection with Chris Williamson and you guys. But like as a kid seeing that flyer, like I, I can only imagine the kind of crowd that would be at something at that time because it represents so many different aspects of the entire subculture, right? Yeah, and you know, that flyer never got old because it was the same icon in the middle and the same typing. Um, 2020 was at that show that night, and there was some dude uh, trying to make me look like a fool in the front of the audience, and... um, they saw me getting uglier and uglier with the dude. So they came over at the same time. I cracked him uh, and cut open his eye and gave him the same type of scar I did. But, you know, it seems like these guys want to fuck with you when you're up there. And then you've got to kind of give them a sting or a bite like a snake. Like, you know, don't, don't fuck with me. Leave me alone. But then they love you. They want to shake your hand and 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 yeah, all this. Yeah, the Edge crowd you're talking about, right? Well, like the punk kids. Yeah, and, and you know, I guess they wanted to come there and get grievous bodily harmed. You know. <laughs> you know, they wanted so, to go home with something, yeah, so I gave the motherfucker. <laughs> I gave the motherfucker what he wanted, and he was so happy. Was there a formal thing between Chris Williams and you after that show? Or, like, when does that actually start coming into play? Wow, you guys are great. Ah, ah, You guys are great. Um, We signed with Profile. Uh, Within a year, his agreement with Profile basically fizzled. Um, Even though he still managed us and he still uh, managed our budget and shows for us and had us go up to Normandy and to work with Tom Soros, the the main engineer from there, and uh, be able to have that sound on the releases, you know. So he, he, he really was very helpful giving us uh, these these situational opportunities to to create something fucking timeless at least as far as legacy in in the history of this thing do you know what i mean yeah. and and not many bands you know whether they have the budget that we had at the time or not get to have a a, a full length that sounds as big as both those first two albums did sound you know by nine by 95 you don't really need these studios anymore because you got pro tools and everything else 
but we still spent time up in Normandy for Open Mouth Kiss. We didn't go up to uh, Normandy for uh, whatchamacallit, Adult Crash. Maybe that's a reason why it doesn't sound good, you know what I mean? Or is the weakest of all four releases, you know? Well, he definitely had some kind of foresight or different perspective to drive you guys towards that. And, I, and you can hear it that you definitely are set aside. And something that I noticed as I was getting into collecting CDs, I have all the Another Planet double CDs, but really the Leeway one, both them records are absolutely outstandingly sounding versus some of the Warzone stuff and some of the other things that were uh, released. And, and it all came from that, you know? Yeah, as far as studio recordings, you know, our albums really withstood the test of time and that's why it may not have the complete musicianship that people would want and expect but you got to admit that it sounds like it was done in the right place everything was created to in in sound to have a big powerful energy behind it you know i i Again, you know, I didn't feel 100% as a vocalist. I was still trying to make my thing happen. But, you know, I really feel like we got it right with Open Mouth Kiss. You know, I can't stress that enough, you know. Now, a weird thing happens where you guys record and then you go on a path of playing everywhere. I mean, the 930 Club, you even come down to Reading, Pennsylvania, you do Unisound, you play all these small clubs. I mean, the Anthrax Club, like you're you're seeding your name everywhere, and yet the record was delayed, and I read somewhere where you said you still find that that may have hurt the inertia of the band at some point. Uh, maybe not in the Northeast, but definitely further out. Uh it's because it wasn't a true hit to the head as a new release. You know, hardcore, no matter where you were in the country at the time, kids were stealing sprint codes and were getting on the phone and talking to somebody a thousand or more miles away about what's going on in their scene or what bands you should be checking out. And then the other guy on this end of the line would be reciprocating and telling you who you should be looking out for. And tape trading, all that shit. You know, it, it, it was known we were coming, almost like a runaway train passing through a station. Like, a lot of people knew we were coming. Uh, where it could have been a bigger surprise and we would have been able to have a much harder impact, you know, than we did. But that's, you know, that happened simply because uh, Zowie left the band and joined the band uh, Circus Power, you know, and he was on tour with them did you ever hear them? I know the band and I listen to them, but I wouldn't be able to tell you 10 songs by them. I want to ride you like the wind. 
Um, yeah, they were in uh, metal magazines that I had on my wall. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, we had to wait for Zowie to come back, sign his release, and dot the I's and cross the T's on all that shit before we were able to to release the album. That's why it went from recording in November 87 and not coming out until January of 89. You know, so think about that. It was like 13, 14 months, you know, that kids are trading tapes and they're getting on the phone, talking to people from other scenes and tape trading was huge back then man oh absolutely you could see it in the back of metal magazines i used to collect a lot of metal magazines and because of my mom's boyfriends there was never a lack of metal magazines in the house cool and you can see it back people just trading but you guys also were doing like short runs like you guys did a bunch of shows of biohazard a bunch of shows of chrome mags a bunch of shows of exodus like even though you guys weren't releasing you guys were really active and I imagine that's how to help spread the name out. And I mean, you were still playing with bands like, you know, before you today stopped playing for a little bit. They, you know, like there's, there's constantly leeway flyer, leeway's name on flyers up and down the East Coast. We only did one show with Biohazard out of state. We gave them their very first show out of state in D.C. They went up and did their thing. Uh, we went on, and after the third song, going into the fourth song. A kid broke his arm on the dance floor, so the cops and the paramedics came in and just said the show was over. So, you know, we collected our, our earnings and just got out that night. Um, Chrome Eggs, we did over a week with. We couldn't extend it because uh, some of us couldn't get up to Canada at the time, and Again, you know, the bad brains are the ones yeah, that... Yeah, that would happen the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, ever since I got in trouble back in 91, uh, the last time I made an attempt to go up to Canada was 2006, and they denied me entrance. I would think now the charge that I had to plead guilty to would be uh, done by now because it's, it's well over 29 years. You know. Before your record, before your record comes out, you play another Crazy Rich show, like one of the like more epic shows that I, the youth the youth crew world still holds in like one of the highest regards. And it's like you guys and you today and Judge. And I wanted to I want I wanted to know what your thought process was as you guys were kind of active as the youth crew world was starting to become a thing, and that show is when youth crew world and the sneakers and the clothes are like paramount. And I kind of want to know if in the time frame where leeway started to now, if you've seen again, a shift in the way that hardcore in New York city and the participants. Looked. Well, I believe that was the first, uh, Super Bowl. Uh, it was a show in January. It was for the release of born to expire that we were the headlining band. But uh, I got busted four days earlier, and I was basically MIA for a radio show interview. And, you know, at this time, I already had what you would call a Pepsi Cola 
dope habit. So I was going to withdraw the whole time in jail until I got out the morning of the show. So the closest place to go was my mom's house. I soaked in the fucking tub. I dug out the skeleton costume and I got to the show. My girlfriend dumped me two weeks earlier. Um, basically, I found a spot under one of the tables backstage and just curled up in a ball until it was time to go on. And I was I was rather uh, apologetic through the whole night. I wasn't my usual self um, because, you know, uh, I, I was learning that then that I had this problem and, and I don't know how to fix it. You know, I wound up kicking over five, six days, but like a fool, I went back, you know, it's a mental thing. That's why most addicts, no matter what their substance of choice, they have a mental health issue or a physical trauma that keeps them or both that keeps them from really being able to get past what they endure in life, what they put themselves through, you know. But um, it was still a great show. It was still packed. I tried to, you know, and, and did give my all. Uh, and, and the reason all of us was still very tight-knit, because all of us were under 25, you know. We were all still kids. And, you know, the unity was still very much there. I think after 91, 92, when... You know, so many of the bands are branching out into their own cliques and their own labels, their own notoriety and their fame, that that was the beginning of the end of, you know, uh, the New York scene that came from the beginning and end of the 80s. You know, uh, a lot of people, you know, didn't have uh, the same... Uh, brotherhood with all the bands, you know what I mean? And, you know, they're not all coming down to CBs on Sunday, you know, because they've got their own world. They're big, you know, they're now over 24, 25, you know, they have other responsibilities in life if they're not on tour. And uh, that's that's pretty much what what it became from that point you know that's that's my take on it you know maybe some people want to claim it's it's something else because it works for their narrative of the story do you know what i mean yeah i was uh more speaking towards just the way that it seemed as hardcore got bigger that there were specific people that were coming and you actually said like bridge and tunnel types that kind of came and they came more with like a homogenized kind of costume. Now I know you were playing, I mean, you guys play with everybody. You guys play with the Iceman. You guys play with calls for alarm. You guys play with outburst carnivore. I mean, leeway really was a band that branched everybody. So hearing your perspective in that regard, I can kind of understand it, but not really what will, I really want to know now that you brought that up about the show and how you, we're in the jail and you had to get out and all this. When did you start that habit? Was a casual thing that was just social from the beginning of the story? Or did it start, like, when did that all begin? 
again. I first moved on to the Lower East Side with a very prolific guitar player in this music scene. Somebody that I was like a little brother to him and we were very tight. Uh, I was first turned on to it from him and then after I moved into the house I saw what a hold it had on him and I left sometime around 87. So you know after I moved out and saw what it did to him you know here I am uh, paying rent giving him money for utilities and it's all going into his arm I'm coming home at nights and because he's so sick he's crying so I'm throwing him 20 bucks I was making a killing working for Steve Rubell at Palladium he was one of the two guys that was famous for Studio 54. Yeah. And and Ian Schrager was his partner, but Ian was a no-nonsense businessman compared to Rubel. So I had money, man. I had money. And, and I guess also because Leeway was making money on the weekends and I started bartending now at this point in 89, I started getting deeper into it. Once you grow the balls... To go copy yourself and go into these areas where you could end up with a Arkansas toothpick around your neck, a gun to your head, and you get robbed. Once you grow the balls to go through that and take the chance to go get it, you become more bold, you know. And uh, that's what happened to me. Like over a period of eight months, I fell right into the thick of it like a fool, you know. Um, but I also suffered from depression and a lot of, uh, that, that was deep rooted from my childhood was a lot of the reason why I was looking for this womb-like warmth that, that dope actually gave you. But then when you get a habit, you know, that feeling is gone. You're now on the chase. A lot of people probably assume I was much more notorious and was spending mad money on the drug. But after I lost my job and things started slowing down, I was lucky to come up with 20 bucks a day just to stay on the habit and maintain myself. So you know how this shit is. You know, like, things become more legend than truth over 20 years with these bands. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and And a lot of people, you know, that's why our, you know, soft-shell soft crab from Baltimore still tries to talk shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. And badmouth everybody, you know? He can't even get my drug of choice right, and he, he still can't spell my fucking name. But... You know, they want everybody to think you were this $100, $200 a day super junkie. You know what I mean? Which, you know, is not realistic for, for many. Unless, like, you're in, you're doing dirt, running a dope spot, making the type of money where you could blow on that shit. You know what I mean? And, and, 
build yourself up to such a huge habit, you know. I was not in that position, you know. I, I basically became uh, so intertwined with my depression that I basically became a $20 a day crybaby, you know what I mean? Honestly, you know, and and a lot of the time I would be, you know, helping someone else get their shit and not because I'm influencing them to get involved with it. You know, they're asking me, you know, so, you know, I'm just trying to stay alive over here. Do you know what I mean? I'm just trying to stay straight. You know, you want to blow your money and you're willing to, to cover me, that ends up being basically half the addicts out there, you know, trying to stay afloat. Because they're in no shape to hold down a job. If they wake up in the morning and they don't have something, they're not going to work. They're not going to court. So you're getting, you know, I'm getting warrants, left and right, you know. And it's the same for anybody else that was caught out there at that time. Last was going to ask, you how know? prevalent was it in the scene? Was it something that your bandmates were aware of? Or was this the first time that it may have potentially affected a performance? Like, how intrusive was it? Or how exposed was the scene to addiction in the actual performers at the time? A lot of guys, as they reach 25 or maybe a little younger, you know, they saw what was happening to me. But um, they would get involved on their own just to see what it's all about. And then, you know, more and more they, they're getting involved in it. And, um, you know, a lot of the younger guys, some were firemen. Uh, you know, some were musicians in other bands. And uh, I can't say it happened to a lot of people. But I would definitely say, excuse me, anywhere between 50 to 20 percent, about 10, more, no more than 15 percent of the scene either experimented and 10 percent of the scene or less got caught up and caught out there, you know. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are no longer with us because of it. A friend of mine who's living sober in on the west coast in California just lost another friend and uh you know that's a pandemic too well i feel like it, at that time when you're talking about this we weren't even able to talk about therapy there was not people talking about mental health and past traumas so you were working it out in whatever way was accessible yeah, it was not just whether I was trying to support my habit, wear my heart on my sleeve. You know, uh, treatment didn't work for me until after 95. Uh, you know, I made very many attempts to go into detox in one downtown hospital. I made five attempts. Uh I even tried methadone, but I was out of that in three weeks because we were going on tour. So, you know, I got two weekend bottles and I was gone, you know. Uh, 
you know, I tried a lot of different things, but because I wasn't ready, I couldn't get through it. Things started working for me after 95, even though I still had a lot of growing up to do. Um, 2001, I started taking an antidepressant, which really helped put things in more order in my mind and started helping me to properly mature and even help others out of this. You know, there's several people in the country today that are either clean and are in sober living because they reached out to me for advice, you know, and only because I was somebody who's been there and done that, if you know what I mean, you know, so uh, I guess because they looked up to me enough that they took my advice and were able to run with it, you know, maybe one or two of them had the support of their family behind them and they were able to financially get them in a good detox center. You know, uh, I never was in some place for 30 days. You know, when you detox out of a New York hospital, you're there for six, seven days and you're sent to the, you know, you're shown the door. You know, you're just given enough days to get the opiates out of your system. And they're like, you feel good? Okay, take care of yourself. So, you know, most people are just not emotionally prepared to stop after being in a hospital for a week. You know, that's just not enough. You know, people need months of therapy after that to keep them on a, a right path and to learn about their addiction and how it triggers them and what it's doing to them, you know? Like, I didn't have dental care for 25 years. That's why if you see some of my shows, man, my shit is all busted up, you know? I got my teeth fixed about six, seven years ago, if that. Do you feel if Leeway stopped before all that, you would have fallen into worse addiction or would you be able to handle it because the performances, the party culture, the fact that you were Eddie Leeway, was there anything that the band did to kind of exacerbate your addiction? Uh, more than half the time, it forced me to at least get my shit together to do whatever we had planned for a certain point. But... Uh, unbeknownst to me, a lot of dates were getting canceled, uh, and they were never discussed with me, um, but they were blamed on me when a lot of that time I knew I was doing all right and we could have did something because, uh, except for that one show that I got out of jail that morning, you know, my performance and how we came off came first, you know, there were very few shows that, that I was, you know, a wreck or noticeably not a hundred percent, you know, but I may be wrong on that point, you know, I can basically think of a handful and, and, 
you know, but I also know how important this thing was for me as well. So if I lost the band, I probably would have gotten deeper in the street life and would have wound up in prison. Not Rikers, you know, been there and done that several times over. But I'm talking about really going upstate, doing three years for dealing or, or, or some other shit. You know what I mean? Because I've got a few violent busts as well on my sheet. So, you know, it could have been anything. You know, I almost did time in Jersey because a dude was threatening me and I put an exacto knife in his fucking taint. <laughs> I mean, I would not expect anything less, actually. <laughs> now, let me ask you, how did your mindset, knowing that you were having uh, drug issues, did you feel like the 89 tour, did you feel like you were going to get clean? Like, did anything involving the logistics of the tour make you think that you had a chance of getting clean because you wouldn't be around the same people or things like how did how did that tour work with you using at the time i was clean all right so you got I clean might before have the tour a, yeah or i only dibbled and dabbled okay. um i we we realized that this shit was having a hold on me but i had my shit together some point after that January 89 show and was doing real well. A lot of the time between 89 and 93, I'd be like six months caught up, six months I'd do all right, eight months I'd be caught up, maybe eight months I was doing all right. So I was, I was in good shape for the 89 tour. Um, I would not have been able to do the uh, shows that I was able to do for, for my guys if I was still caught out there. Um, you know, I would be in every city. I would need something, so I'd be running around, you know, begging people, hey, do you know where I could cop? You know what I mean? So I would have had a bad name much sooner than, than the assumed band name that I got later on. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think HR would have liked that or, or any of <laughs> the other like, Bad Brains guys. I look at the tour dates with, bad, uh, with the Bad Brains, and it's so extensive, especially for just a New York hardcore band in general. That was a large tour to be a part of. So I couldn't see you having an addiction or you know just a, an, uh, even something you had to feed every day in that, kind of, in that kind of run, you know? You can't. You just can't. Uh, there was a point on one European tour that I didn't have the time to get my shit together before we left. And it was very, very hard. You know, in Germany, for, for most dudes, here's how you could cop. Go to the main train station. That's, that's where all the junkies of Germany are. Like, you could be walking through the five block radius around Hamburg's main train center, you know, and you'll see junkies between cars trying to get, you know, tie one on and, you know, get off and all that shit. But, you know, sometimes you get caught out there and you're in a different country and you just can't have the success 
like it is to go to a local train station in Germany. And then you're fucked. And now, like, you know, you're sick as a fucking dog. And now you're not dealing with some bullshit, you know, crap. You're dealing with, like, real heavy-duty dope that that uh, you're buying by the gram over there. And uh, so you have it is up here now instead of being over here, you know, and then you're, you're twice as sick, twice as fucked up, and everybody knows, on the bus, you know what I mean, there's no fucking hiding it, you know, and those are, those are the things I have to um, take responsibility for, but I also wasn't handling the business anymore. I kind of passed that off. So, you know, as much as I was culpable for my own mistakes, people were responsible for all of us and making mistakes. So, you know, are we going to sit here and point fingers at each other or move the fuck on with our lives? That's what I've been trying to do, you know. When you look at the time in 1989 when you're on tour at the Bad Brains, you're also on a label that has a huge impact on hip-hop and what was growing to be a giant industry. Do you feel like the label just picked the couple handful of New York hardcore bands in case hardcore got to that same size or the possible size? Or obviously, I've seen you write about how at least they marketed you, at least they tried to have a publicist for you. But what are your thoughts in general as Profile made hip-hop so big versus where the hardcore bands like Murphy's Law, yourselves, Cro-Mags, and I, I think it was that like Wargasm and someone else on there as well? Motorhead. Oh, Motorhead as well, yeah. That's okay. why you're thinking they released Orgasmatron. Or what was the name of that album? I think it was Orgasmatron. That's why I think you're thinking Wargasm. But they also reissued all the previous Motorhead albums. And, you know, originally, we all know, we both know that that's the house Run DMC built. Um, I think they started picking up the bands assuming they would carry themselves and make them money. But, you know, as much as they did provide, you know, a publicist and they were attempting to get things right, but they only knew rap. It wasn't even hip-hop then, you know. Uh, we get to San Francisco. There's a huge ad in the papers for Born to Expire. We're doing two nights at the Stone Pony with the Bad Brains. But the record's not even in the shops. Wow. And, you know, again, that's... Snatching defeat from the jaws of victory instead of snatching victory from the jaws of fucking defeat. You know, it's an old line Jerry Nolan, the drummer of the New York Dolls, used to say about Johnny Thunders, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory instead of getting victory. And, and that was a lot of the, the disappointments that we were getting, you know, and... Uh, here I am signing with the label. Uh, the next year, there's somebody in the mailroom 
talking mad shit every day about the big artists on the label or anybody else who's not in the office at the time. And then a year later, this motherfucker's an executive. You know what I mean? Like, the things that I saw from this industry, uh, I grew to just not give a fuck. And, and I was going to call him out. So, yeah, I would ask all the promoter people, hey, you know, give me some of my CDs. And I would go around everybody and procure a whole fucking box and then go sell them to survive for a couple of days. I wasn't going to give a fuck. What are you doing for me? You can't even have the record in the shops. You know, I, I didn't really understand the business as far as accounting, but there's been a creative accounting, which is just another form of cooking the books. You know, they, yeah. they buy you dinner, but it's on your tab, nigga. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, we're going to give you tour support, but we're going to take it out of your ass when, when we sell the records. Whoa, 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 ain't there 50-50 in this game? I know you're taking 80% of the unit sale, but you're all running around with credit cards, making believe you're doing great things for me, but I'm actually paying for it. You know? Get the fuck out of here. You know, I'd rather be today, I would rather be on a smaller label where I feel like I could trust a guy and I could have a better understanding of things. Uh, and there's really only been one label through this whole time period that I've really trusted, and that's Mario from Upstate. Um, you know, that... I actually just saw him yesterday. You know, he's he's a good family man. Uh, I've always been able to have, like, some seriously deep conversations with him. And, you know, everything has always been on the up and up, you know. And that, that's what I want. I don't want you trying to be my brother, make me a promise, and then backpedal. I've had a problem with two Belgian labels. And the old one pulled that creative accounting shit with me. You know, come on, nigga. I, I've, I've read enough OC books to know what's going on when people are doing one thing as far as income, but putting another thing down in a motherfucking ledger. You know? The other one made promises while I had a walking tour in New York and then ducked me on the phone on two separate occasions and disappeared for three weeks. You know, um, and that was something I had this whole other business. I signed a contract with Time Out Magazine and I lost all my advertising thanks to you. You know, and, and people wonder why I'm so fucking angry, you know what I mean? Because at times, this shit could have helped me out, you know? <coughs> we also had to sign away half our publishing with Profile. But, you know, that's the difference between guys like me and AJ and 
no real education in the business next to uh, Anthrax who probably had a real good entertainment lawyer from the beginning and signed to a label that was putting up much more money to get them over the top and whatever that would cost didn't matter because they were getting paid on the road and moving merch too you know but not a fucking hardcore band you know you're you're basically starving us and and taking so much away from us because there's really not much there to take from the get-go something we could count on but you know a lot of kids don't realize that labels basically act as if they're treating you to this and that and spending all this money on advertising if they even do that and in the end you're paying for it not not then you know and if you're not smart enough by now because of the sad stories of the bands that came before you and you're signing away half your publishing forget about it even hip-hop bands knew better to work that publishing get in advance a lot of them that never made it would get a nice fat in advance and they go buy a new car but they're you know their release wouldn't even fucking chart and they would be gone tomorrow so all you've got is a car that probably needs a new transmission and uh, you're out of the game. Well, let me ask you this. You do a tour with Bad Brands and you guys are obviously on a sound that would bring so many bands to higher like levels. At any point in time, did someone try to come to Profile or Chris and say, hey, we're going to take these guys and do something bigger? Was there any like roadblocks from stopping that to happen? Because that's something Paris brought up as well, was it was impossible to get off Profile. But I mean, if you look at some of the other bands that were getting bigger, I've always wanted to know if Leeway was kind of like locked in and they couldn't leave. Well, Paris should have did what I was doing for the last three years and fucking housing them clean. We got let go by 1991 or, or in the beginning of 92. But they were so tired of my shit by then. You know, they gave us a gift for our first European tour and we got let go. Uh, we wanted to get free long before that, but they were demanding a low six figures for our contract. So a lot of these labels that really wanted to take us on, they couldn't afford that. They couldn't afford 150 grand to buy out their fucking contract. So Profile really turned us into chattel. Huh. You know, they basically had us by the balls. You know, so I, I didn't get to that part in Paris's interview with you. But that was the truth. And this is why I started fucking housing them for everything and everything possible. When you say housing them, could you get into uh, detail? Yeah, I, I would go up to everybody in the fucking office and I would take as many CDs as they would give me and compile 60, 70 or more copies. 
And I would go to the record stores and fucking give them a deal. You know what I mean? And, you know, I did that at a big show at City's Gardens. And I made my rent that night. You know, this is what I had to do. Because, you know, you won't let us go. You know, uh, you're not being honest about so many things. And, and I just got so tired of it, you know. Um, their vice president, I would go in there and really pour my heart out. And he would just sit there and like smile, fucking laugh, and try to change the subject, you know. Ironically, he was a gay man named Gary Peeney. <laughs> Go figure. Hi, Gary. Hi, Gary. I don't even know if the motherfucker's alive anymore. But his mailroom bitches, you know, you're getting me started, Joe. <laughs> well, I was just see, because the trajectory of the band at this point is that you have this awesome fucking record. You're on a tour with, like, the band of the 80s by so many people structure. And you are one foot in hardcore punk, which is blowing up. You're one, one foot in the crossover thrash sound. And it's always been something that I wanted to know. And I, I know it's got to be bothersome to you. But then, so what do you guys do as a band? Do you guys still operate on the premise like it's all going to work out? How did you take this kind of animosity towards a label and address shows? Were you still going out and being as excited? And I know you obviously, because the record took so long, you were working on the next record. So, like, where was the mindset of the band? Where was your um, overall, like, motivation? Or was it starting to be soured because of the bad business dealings on their end? All of that made us, you know, I'm sure very depressed. I know I was, you know. Um, we started pulling apart at some point in the beginnings of 92, I guess. And I'm going by AJ's comments because but that's even that's even after uh, Desperate Measures rocked out. I mean, so did you feel like the label was with you guys after the tour? Like, when does this bad taste start? Well, then? it was basically spilling over uh, as early as the end of 90. Where I was at, it was like the 89 tour is over, and you guys are fucking... You guys are then still happy. You guys aren't mad at the label yet, are you? Not until after the... Desperate Measures release. Um, okay. From there, we weren't seeing things really working. That's when I really stopped giving a fuck. And, you know... What, uh, giving a fuck about the band or giving a fuck about the relationship with the label? That's it. The relationship with the label. That's why I just started fucking trying to take everything that was nailed down. It's like, you know, basically... <laughs> you want me... You that. want me... You want me to feel like a sucker? Well... You know, I'm going to act like, you know, a desperate street motherfucker. And I'm just going to, you know, take posters, CDs. I'd sell anything. I, I wouldn't give a fuck if it was DJ Quick or my own stuff. You know what I mean? It's just like... Yeah, you had to make the money to make it rent. I was like, wow, this is cool. Can I have this? You know, in the bag, you know. So let's rock into where your heads are at with Desperate Measures and the writing for that. That album was pretty much written by the time we released Born to Expire. Yeah, because it took so long to come out, right? We, but we were, yeah, over 18 months, we were still working. 
and we were even incorporating those songs into the live show. Yeah, I've seen a couple of live things where you hear songs before they were released. And, you know, like we were that tight together, you know, very much how the Chromex were tight during the Age of Quarrel. Not just the demo, but the re first release. It's the poison that was Profile Records that played with the minds of the members from each band that also contributed to guys getting tired of each other's bullshit. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't feel like we had the same uh, dissension going on as maybe the Chromex did from the stories in the books and Paris having his two cents uh, with you. But, you know, I'm getting sick and tired of myself. The guys are getting sick and tired of me, you know. Guys are trying to take on roles that they're not capable of. This fucking label, you know, isn't doing anything to get us any further than we did on our own, you know. Like, when Once Expired came out, uh, I don't know how long we held the record, but we held the record for most units sold in a week for a hardcore band, and we went through the whole 18,000 units in a week, you know, like that was unheard of in 1989. There was no band out of the New York scene selling that many units in a week. Well, yeah, I mean, look at the bands you were playing with. I mean... That's the thing that puzzles me this whole time is there's got to be someone, or I've always assumed there was someone saying, we can make something so much fucking bigger, but Propile was gatekeeping. And then when you look at this Desperate Measures record, I mean, the second track goes right back to what we were talking about with the dope. Is that something that you were using as a way to cathartically work out your issues? Or when you were writing, you were, you were using uh, recreationally? Ironically, I wrote that for someone else. Okay. And it was only through time the story became me and every other dope fiend that went to shows. I, I would play that song at CB's later on in like 94 and dudes would start bawling to the track. You know what I mean? Uh... It just it just became like such an anthem for people who fell down that track and, and and you know, as much as I was trying to write stories from my life, which I always did, um, and, and that's why the music's still personal to me and means a lot to me. Um, it was originally about somebody else, but by the time the album's out a year, I'm full thrown into it and the song might as well be about me do you know what i'm saying yeah it wasn't it wasn't intentional but it ended up fitting the bill right perfect like the shoe fits it's a shame what happened with the chrome eggs not just us but i felt profile had a lot to do with that if williamson couldn't control somebody he wanted them out of the band and uh damn 
Chrome Eggs could have been such a super group. They were just powerful as personalities and individuals. And then the music they created was was just, you know, it the first time you hear it, it's intimidating. When I first heard that uh, demo with Mackie sounding like a, a Uzi hitting that snare, you know, I was literally intimidated by that recording. I was like, damn, these guys got it. I don't know who can match it. You know, this is something on a whole new level to me. And, uh, you know, they like Lee Wei and others proved that they were human, that they weren't super beings. You know what I mean? And that, you know, shit can get in our way. It doesn't matter who you are. You know, I feel like I don't know what the fuck profile did to do wrong because Murphy's Law would go on to do a tour of Beastie Boys and Red Hot Chili Peppers. As you said, with Chromax, they were on tour with Destruction. Uh, Metallica was openly standing them, as the kids would say now, and giving a ton of support. And, and Leeway, you guys toured America with Bad Brains and Sick of It All at the one of the zenith moments in the 80s for New York hardcore. And there's Pusshead, writer of Thrasher magazine, you know, heralding Leeway as one of the greatest bands. I mean, the stars had aligned specifically for Crow Mag's Bad Brains, you know, Murphy's Law, all the stuff. And yet it just didn't come to fully pass in in a way commercially. And one of the things that I've always taken away is you always see people bring up Anthrax and New York Hardcore and Anthrax stealing blueprints and, you know, running forward. And I don't know, I don't know where that sits with you, but the thing that I've seen is there's a show that you guys play soon, soon around the time of the release of Desperate Measures. And it's the new Titans mm-hmm. on the block with Sepultura, Sacred Reich, Biohazard, Leeway, Typo Negative, White Zombie, Napalm Death. Like you were in the running pack of what would be the bands that would, by many people, maybe not so much Sacred Reich, but a lot of the bands on there would be the bands of, that would change metal in the 90s. And you also had a fucking video, Kingpin on Headbangers Ball. Like all this stuff is in your hands. And I'm so I'm glad that you said the thing you said where you started going at the label and you started doing these things where you were, you know, if they weren't going to give you what you needed, you're going to fucking steal and take from them because I don't, I, I think any fucking, I mean, there is a moment I believe where the Gorilla Biscuits uh, did a U.S. tour and they didn't have their fucking records and that was a huge bum out for them. But I mean, even that, I mean, the Gorilla Biscuits wasn't able to cross quite as much into the metallic world that you guys were. And so it it had to affect you and you had to kind of push back in some regard, would you not? If if I could have been busy and and stayed on the road or shit like that and I was doing something positive, I don't think I would have kept falling back into this denigration of life on the streets. All the machinations came from Chris. He's the one that got the chrome eggs out there with Motorhead and Destruction. You know, he's the one that got us uh, out to do the quickness tour under the assumption that Profile was going to release 
uh, desperate measures soon. Profile wasn't doing anything. The bands were like al dente pasta to them. They would basically give you the budget, let you record, and and if you sim it and cook the right time, you could take the noodle and throw it against the wall, and if it sticks, hey, we're making money. If it doesn't stick, they're not doing anything. This is like I said, it wasn't the first time in Frisco that they had an advertisement in the paper to come get Leeway's new release, and then it wasn't in the fucking store. You know, I I couldn't go to the label anymore, you know, begging for some sort of, you know, leeway, like some help here. You know what I mean? You know, do what's supposed to be done so we can do what we need to do and we'll all be happy. You know what I mean? But like I said, I would sit in Gary Peeney's office and he would just have this stupid fucking grin on his face. And, uh, you know, I, I only know how to react to a bad situation. And at that time, not being emotionally together and not being more than a, uh, young adult, you know, I was going to do the things that I did being in the position that I was in, you know, maybe the other guys in the band didn't have the balls to show up at the label, complain and do what I did. But I know I did what I did and I don't have regrets for it. Maybe more people need to treat a label like I did to get them to either understand and help or do more. Well, let the band fucking go. Now, let when them, you started saying about the let them know, go, that was, you said the end of 91, early 92? It was, it was basically after Desperate Measures. We were just seeing the same old bullshit happening. Nothing got better. They, they didn't really respect how far we reached on, on the freshman release. And for a sophomore release you know, which is called the sophomore jinx. So the sophomore release isn't as good as the first, but we, we equaled born to expire yet. They still just, you know, didn't do anything. So I did what I I mean. Looking at leeway again, we keep talking about the same thing here. You are in a new decade playing now with the players I mean, everybody. I mean, everybody in the 90s. Quicksand, Marauder, Slapshot, Only Living Witness. I mean, Mucky Pup, you guys would tour with. Uh, you know, it just goes on and on. I mean, we said it before with White Zombie, you know, Biohazard. You guys were on Headbangers Ball. This should have been something that they could have turned into something. And uh, just, just with that promotion alone, man, you should be able to move fucking units. So, you know so, what I mean? Were you guys that it was a Chris Williams thing that got you another European tour, or did you guys link up? Were you working with MAD when you guys went back on this tour? When we went to Europe for the first and the majority of the tours, it was MAD, and uh, you know that was through our own shit. 
Um, I forget. We played with Gore one night. Williamson was not even at uh, Studio 54 because the Ritz went up to Studio 54 after the owner wound up in Club Fed for, for you know, money's issues, you know, financial white-collar crimes, we'll say. He wound up in Club Fed. So he moved up to Studio 54 and put the Ritz on, on the marquee. Um, Williamson wasn't even there that night when we opened up for Guar. And I forget what happened. It was yet another show. We're in the middle of our set, and we're being told, their song, their song. We didn't even get a chance to breathe up there. And I was like, this is bullshit. You know what, Chris? Your ass is fucking fired. And the whole house erupted. And that actually made uh, Thrasher's top 100 shows <laughs> for that year. That's fucking awesome. You know? So we're downstairs, and he takes his limo or car with a driver back to the show. And he comes downstairs. He's trying to keep this poker face as he's coming at me and gives me a huge fucking shove. Um, by then, a friend of mine, Danny Ilchuk, was like our show and tour manager. And, um, you know, I, I just started letting it all out. It was It was more or less the same shit that I would do with profile, but I was fed up. So I, I just started getting choked up. And I said, you know what, dude, this isn't working out, man. This just ain't fucking working out. As you know, and back then I didn't trust him. I had to look in an adult's eyes later on to realize how much he did help us. But shit was stagnant at that point. And and we needed to be free from him as well as profile and go our own road. You know, a lot of hardcore bands that succeeded, you know, um, they were able to do it with just like, you know, uh, whether it's family as manager or someone they kind of picked up from the crowd to be their manager and started working with DIY type companies like MAD and were doing it themselves. They didn't have to have this pseudo faking it till we make it record labels um, bullshitting the bands when, you know, they can find people that are more on their eye to eye level, but we still couldn't get the labels right. Uh, we had a label from Europe. I forget what central media called. or someone like and that. I, uh, no, no, we never went with century media. And I never dealt with them because when I was trying to make something happen with Marauder, um, this they wanted me to sign away again half my publishing, and they didn't want to uh, provide me with any funds that I already spent with the band because I had to get their contract read. You know, they were getting screwed over like you know, we were with profile. They didn't really know better. And they probably signed that deal before Drew had a chance to help them because Drew was managing them before I jumped in. Uh, 
you know, and, and this is the sad reality of so many bands that were just young street kids catching fire around the globe, not just East Coast and West Coast. And, and uh, you know, like I said with Williamson, it's like, I'm, I'm fed up with you. I'm, I'm tired of this shit. I, I want out. You're fucking gone. I don't give a fuck what you did for us. I don't give a fuck what you do in the future. Well, you're you know? also you were also 25 years old, and you've been doing this for a good bit now. And it's got to be – I empathize because it's got to be frustrating to put the work in, see the organic interest, see people at the street level interested, and yet the label with the finances – to do stuff with things like run DMC, we're just pulling a fucking complete zero on your end. Now, when you went to that Europe tour, Europe has really started to actually get more of the American hardcore coming through from like 87 onward. So how did you guys get received when you came over there? We, we caught fire. People were bugging out. You know what I mean? Like, uh, not only did we have the energy, just like the other bands that made it out there before us, you know, uh, we were doing something with some real heavy guitar work and, and a solid drummer behind us that, uh, you know, they bugged out. But we also, you know, didn't just stick to our repertoire. Back then, there were concerts and the headliner had to play close to 90 minutes. You know, not just put in a 45 minute set, 90 minutes. So we would do uh, the clash, should I stay or should I go? And people would sing along with that. Sometimes uh, we would do just a beat, and AJ would try to do like a reggae ish riff. I called it Ready Whip, you know what I mean? And I would just like rhyme or sing over it. In fact, when we played Berlin, Richie Underdog was on the road with uh, one of his bands. I think he was trying to get into another off the ground at that point. And uh, we did more dates later on with them too. But, uh, you know, he and I were doing this eight-minute thing to stretch the show. And the crowd was dancing. They were in it from beginning to end. So it's not like we were adding filler to the set. You know, like we couldn't go wrong with whatever the fuck we did. You know what I mean? Gesundheit. Like whatever we did during our set, they had a great time. Whether they were, were seeing or going to a show for the first time, you know, because a lot of people dressed normal. They weren't necessarily a punk or a skinhead. You know, there were a lot of regular types there too, you know. There was a type of like waffle shoe all the girls wore at that time. And, you know, like they just had a basic look or a little alternative or they had a skinhead, a punk look. You know, it was bringing people together. That's what this music was doing. It was bringing so many people from so many walks of life together. And, and that's a beautiful thing to be a part of. And, and feel like you're vibing. Remember I said, you know, uh, as I was graduating elementary school, I either wanted to be a baseball player, a fucking lawyer, or, or a singer. 
And here I am living one of my dreams. And it's the, the, the deepest form of prostitution I could ever be a part of. And, and I was told this by Gordon Ansis' dad at the time. Joe Ansis was Rodney Dangerfield's best friend. And he told me, and this is why Gordon had to leave the band. He wasn't 18 yet. He said, a record contract is a form of prostitution. I hope you understand that. And, uh, you know, he, he, was, he was right. He was so fucking right. Especially when you're with the label that has you. They're treating you like chattel. And they're not letting you move the fuck on. Now... When you get back, are you are you linking up with someone else to kind of fill what Chris did, or is this completely self managed? And or or did you find a booking agent? Like, as other bands are starting to grow and get agents, was that thing in your structure now that Chris is out of the picture? It really couldn't uh, fall into place. We dabble with certain booking agencies. We never committed. I'm in and out of fucking jail and Rikers. Um, we didn't trust after Profile and, and Chris. You know, like we really, you know, I know me personally, I could look at the bigger picture today, like I said before, but there was such a mistrust for most industry people and me going through the next four years of my bullshit that we couldn't really keep a steady, firm control on things. But again, and I, I always said this, if we did whatever we could to stay busy and, you know, dates weren't canceled without my input, you know, things probably could have maintained been different and we would have found people that found enough value into us that that are you know uh on a level to properly support us you know what i mean getting us on the right shows helping us finance a tour with a few bucks you know like like Things would have happened. We had such raw fucking talent, you know, that wasn't changing because I was in and out of a fucking dope habit. You know, I mean, we could have still made things happen, but too many people were were just not aligned. And, uh, you know, it got tough. I, I'm glad that we finally at least got our shit together and made a great album with Open Mouth Kiss. You know, and all the way into 2001, we had stutter stops where we tried to get going. But by the time I did Philly, um, we were supposed to do a show with a female promoter. And it was, I guess, downtown. And... It was the year of the Olympics. The torch was coming through town. It was then I realized that I didn't really want to do this anymore because it was just defeating getting myself hyped up and excited for the next opportunity and chance 
only for it to go down in flames. You know, uh, we got to Philly that night. I kept telling AJ, we're in the age of cell phones, you know, call this promoter. You know, it's the holidays. We're stuck in traffic due to an accident. You know, call her. Let her know we're on our way. But by the time we got there, too many people were kind of pressing on her, wondering where the fuck we were. So she took off. You know what I mean? She didn't have the sand to hold it down. She took off. And we never got to do the show. So, you know, to them, it wasn't a big deal. Oh, let's go back at something. You know, I flew in. I mean, I took the bus in or train in from Pittsburgh. I'm living in Pittsburgh at this time, you know, and, and I could just see that, you know, it just rolled off their back. Like, ah, oh, just another fuck up. Let me, um, let me, let me you ask know? you, cause we're going to, we're jumping fast here where, um, yeah. From the time where you said you were getting ahead of the habit and that was uh post born to expire release, bad brains tour. And where does the habit, grow again where where does the obviously where you're you're getting arrested you're involved in street things still where 91 so what 95. i'm saying is is like where in you like was it was it just because the band didn't have stability or were you still just chasing old demons where where did the where do you think the habit grew from again a combination of depression and All of the bullshit, the label, and missed opportunities, and, you know, having too much downtime. Like I said, if we were more consistent and stayed on the road, I wouldn't have time for that shit. You know, I, as I explained, you know, I could be six months clean, six months in it, eight months clean, eight months in it. And that was really right through, I guess, 93. Then I had two straight years of just being on the streets. But by 95, treatment kicked in. <laughs> and in Philly that night, I literally watched the torch run by. And I just realized, like, it was almost like an epiphany or even a metaphor. Like, everyone's moving forward with the light. And, and I'm just sitting here trying to hold on to missed opportunities again and again and again, you know, and I, I tried walking away from this, you know, I don't think we did any more shows after 2001. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. You had that show that didn't happen in 96. And then you guys did a short, quick run in uh 98. And it was, you guys played the truck with E-Town concrete you guys played CC's uh, with E-Town Concrete. And then by the early 2000s, there was no more leeway out. It was completely gone. Yeah. But I, what I'm saying to you is, did you, as you were struggling back and forth between like on, on off managing the addition, did the thought of like reaching back out to your family, did you, did you have anything else besides the music? And your habit going on, like where is that why you were so unstable? Like what was the what was the crux of where you couldn't get any kind of balancing point? In 2001, I was already in treatment from 95 on. I was in treatment 2001. 
I, I was able to walk away from that and had therapy. And I was in a living relationship in Pittsburgh. I made the choice to move from New York. When was that? Two thousand one, you said, or oh, um, yeah. but so so previous to that though, because when we talk about two thousand one, there was that whole period where Jorge went to El Nino, and the whole Marauder demo took place. So you were that yeah, was you were, so you were still out in New York at that time. Yeah, and I wasn't. Which by, which by the way, I know you, I've read it on a blog you wrote. Uh, we definitely had that tape in my Camaro driving around, and I couldn't fucking believe <laughs> that you were going to be a marauder. It was like, holy shit, this is going to be crazy. And I was trying to bring it uh, completely 180 to it. You know, I was trying to do what I would have done with Leeway with them. And, you know, it's one of the most controversial releases I ever did. It is. You know, because some half Marauder fans dig it. The other half can't stand it because I'm not doing what Jorge is doing. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to do my own thing and stay true to my style while being in another band. But I was already in treatment. You know, I, I was doing much better. And, you know, these on and off stutters with the band by 2001, I just, I just gave up, you know, and, and I tried even after that to try to, you know, reach out with the guys, especially after 2005 to maybe there was enough time past all the business and uh, lack of, opportunities and all the things that kept getting screwed up. I thought maybe we had enough time past us that we could all sit down, find a way to make this work, maybe cut another demo and find a good label and a good release. You know, I had some time behind, be, behind the streets, um, you know, but it fell on deaf ears and that's when, you know, after I broke my neck in 2006, uh, you know, I pursued, I pursued truth and rights. You know, back then, Agents of Man was like a whole new revelation for me in this music. And uh, I heard Georgie Puto didn't want to do it anymore. So I was like, yo, let me jump in, you know. And I was trying to talk with Cools and the other guys. But then I broke my neck, fell into a whole bunch of shit. Like I said, uh, I was in Newark and I stabbed that dude. Hold on, let's let's um, let's let's get some. I'm gonna get some organized. I know you got a lot of thoughts to push out. So the way yeah. I'm hearing this is that, and, and and just so that way there's some um, like a timeline. So by ninety by ninety two, you guys were already out of the contract and you're working towards adult crash. Yeah, and we so you drop, were feeling yeah. you 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 spoke many times. You didn't really feel like adult crash ended up being something that you were really fond of, and you put some of it towards not being a Normandy sound, but that you really did enjoy Open Mouth Kiss, and that came out in '95, and then obviously we're talking about the Summer Olympics was when you were trying to come and still play some shows. 
So on one hand, even though the label situation wasn't great, you got back on track and had two releases. But what was Eddie? Where was Eddie at? Was Eddie still like a street kid? Was Eddie still trying to move and shake and make the world happen? Or were you kind of like you were trying to keep it straight enough to do the band and otherwise you were out in, in the mix of the, of the underworld of, of things, so to speak? 95, I was in treatment, but still acting like a cocky young adult. I guess I did have <clears throat> one foot in the streets without necessarily abusing. But then I also had one foot in the, in, in the band and still wanting to do this. And I think Open Mouth Kiss is a testament to that. Uh, we had a lot of stutter steps going into the lead of 2001 because we wouldn't stay steady you know uh 99 wound up being another attempt at us going on the road we had eddie cohen on bass aj is the only guitar like open mouth kiss and pokey um you know we had good success with that and then uh all the way through 2001, we weren't really playing steady, but we were doing once in a blue moon shows. It was, like I said, that point in 2001, it just seemed like this band was doomed to never achieve what they could have achieved. And I wanted to, to move on and try something new. Did I attempt after a few years to try to talk everybody back into it? But, you know, were they maybe tired of my shit? That's quite possible. You know what I mean? But then I got, got into all that shit in 2006 while trying to do other things, like trying to promote shows. CB's closed. So uh, I was trying to promote a pyramid. And then I got into that whole thing in Newark at Penn Station there where, you know, I stabbed that dude and I broke my neck while I was in jail. I ran my head through a fucking door. You know, that's what a lot of people don't realize. They assume I've heard the craziest shit. I was in a drug deal gone bad with the bloods and I started stabbing a bunch of dudes up. And then I got locked up and someone broke my neck while I was in jail. I was in uh, Big Blue out that area. But I ran my head into a, a plexiglass partition flipping out over a CO. You know, um, really between 97 and 2001, after we recorded Open Mouth Kiss, we really didn't do that many days. I know that... Um do you think that the 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 departure of Michael Gibbons affect negative or positive open mouth kiss? Um, I could say one or the other. What I feel open mouth kiss uh, adult crash was a culmination of a new change we were trying to achieve with one guitar, but we didn't get it right until open mouth kiss. Um, I have a lot of guilt and Mikey's one of my only supporters from the band to this day. Um, you know, I felt when we took that first tour to Europe again, uh, nobody was paying attention to the band. We were literally parked across the street from the police station 
in the red light district where uh you know our hotel was and mikey's first guitar that custom cream les paul and aj's bag of tricks all his effects and chords and whatnot got stolen they busted the triangle on the other side of the car from across the street from the police station and took what they could and ran with it we went to a couple of like the pseudo you know uh flea market areas and to a couple of the pawn shops trying to find michael's guitar but being that he was also the youngest uh he never felt comfortable out of the country and that tour took a toll on him so i was the one that basically started pushing for him to leave or 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 even kick him out i was just like you know we can't have this happening on the road let alone y'all need to be more diligent watching your gear you know let me know when it's done you know and and i have again you know that to take responsibility of but you know since then after we did the reunion tour with mikey uh in europe i guess that was 2006 2007 uh you know i've had a better relationship with him and even after i went to alone as leeway nyc he's done a couple of shows with me he did one of the super bowls he did that a7 show i guess uh a year ago august um i can't remember the exact date but it was one of the shows uh the second show that drew actually did when he had a uh, uh doc martin's uh promoting the dates at the old day sevens which is niagara now um he was bringing back the dates in honor and reminiscent of the old a7s days you know so i've been able to uh kind of make amends with mike after all of that and you know um he's the only one that really supports me at this point what i what i would like to do is go over a couple of things from the nine early yeah. 90s eddie sutton perspective on music and where it was changing. And then I'm we're going to go deeper into your personal life. So Leeway, okay. especially from Desperate Measures to Adult Crash, there's a sonic change. And, and I wonder if that is something cognizant of the way that the majors were starting to pick up um, independent bands. And if there was any effect from the metallic sound shifting to a grunge sound and indie rock and just overall the the control that I think college music is something that we've talked a lot about on this show with different guests where college music radio had all these new entrants and you guys played with quite a few of them. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you guys were just, it's either column A or column B. You guys thought, ah, well, you know, we were, you know, we're a New York hardcore band from the mid eighties we're in the early nineties. We want to shift our sound because we're growing. We're, you know, our sound is progressing. Or do you think that there was a part of you because you're playing your 
organically hearing sounds that and and bringing them to where do you think leeway's uh approach to the second and well the third and fourth records came from uh since mikey was gone and it was just aj as guitar from what i was told just recently uh aj pokey and jimmy wanted to follow the grunge sound. Now, I found like Bad Motor Finger and the, maybe the first Pearl Jam album to be strong, but you know, I was Eddie Sutton. I wasn't going to become Eddie Vedder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You understand the thing? So um, I think that may have a lot to do with Adult Crash. We didn't have a real engineer, it was too many cooks spoiling the soup. And uh, that's why, you know, there's only a couple of uh, uh, tracks on that sound, on that album that really, you know, stuck with people. Um, by the time we did Open Mouth Kiss, I just felt like we had a better understanding and uh, a better chance at doing what we always did, or at least what we did with the first two records. And... Uh, you know, again, I'm very proud of that release, especially after an abortion like uh, Adult Crash was. You know, it just it just really showed how uh, dysfunctional the band was at that point. And, you know, we didn't have a real budget. It was that label in Europe who really didn't offer us much. I think they offered us half of what we were getting with Profile which at least profile got us up to Normandy with a real engineer, you know, you know, we could have taken a turd and turned it into silver with the professionalism we had on the recording side with that studio. Um, by the time 95 came around, you know, it was, it was complete again, but we didn't have management. We didn't have, uh, a true booking agency in the States. And um, I was just starting to get my shit together as much as I waited for the phone call to do another show whenever these guys were ready. Like I said, by the time 2001 came around, I just grew tired of it. No, I'm glad. I'm... I, I, I at, least, at least needed a time well, out. A, before because... I'm going to get to you personally. I'm really happy that you brought up the grunge element because especially stuff like uh, you'll you'll see people in hardcore who were not around for that, and then they'll go through the discography of a band and find like the the one people don't talk about, and they'll be like, "Oh, I really love this record," and, and you do have a couple tracks on there, but to me, I've always looked at it as maybe you were going in the direction writing to kind of not follow the pack, but when you're playing with bands like quicksand and you're seeing all these changes, cause you guys were still playing shows this whole time and you guys were playing the clubs where this sound became more and more um, prevalent. So it was impossible. It wasn't like you guys were like, Oh, you know, we need to find a sound. You guys were in the rooms where these sounds were getting bigger. So I think it kind of, I think it slide. Uh, I think AJ slid it in there, but for me, I, I totally see what you're saying because adult crash isn't even at, the production level of open the mouth kiss. And I don't see, I don't see what you did in desert measures or in Bur born to expire in the third record. 
And so I just always wanted to know if there was a thought process or uh, organized like, hey, we're going to try this and see if it sticks. And so after you do a dull crash, you come out with open mouth, Chris, pretty much within a year or so, which is the quickest you guys had a second record out. Like, you know, because you guys I mean, you guys waited a, a long time for Born to Expire. But for me, musically, I don't know if you guys, because of the way the music was shifting, unless you guys had like a, a what you were talking about, like a management or something, would have been able to help you push because by the time 96, uh, 95, 96 came, the market was fucking slammed. Right. So it was even harder for bands who didn't have like that corp, not corporate, but like a professional pushing you guys. Or what do you think made it hard for Leeway to push out with open mouth kiss? Uh, all right. Well, let's go back to Adult Crash quick. You know, apparently the band was broken up. So all of a sudden, we get the call from this European label. They're willing to provide a budget. And at the shortest notice, we're supposed to come up with a fucking album. You know what I mean? That's why the album opens with Simple Life. And then all of a sudden, the next song's a love song. My name is Archie, you. You know, it, it just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense. And there was no real engineer uh, all these guys are trying to put their input when they've never really produced or or, or did an album, you know. And I'm not saying it's it's just AJ. AJ's helped a lot of bands sound better than they actually are, you know. But there was just too many people who had no experience. Um, I was rushed. I just tried to write hooks and and make a story. But yes, it was a very short time period before Open Mouth Kiss. We had time to write the songs. We had a little pre-production and we were able to make a top to bottom album just like the first two releases. And we were able to shine individually with our talents, you know, that we couldn't make happen with that old crash, not on that short uh, notice. You know, AJ was given the budget and we just, like I said, you know, what we used to do on the road in Europe, a little bit of ready whip and let's see what happens. <laughs> you guys even cover the buzzcocks on Open Mouth Kiss, which I think is cool as shit. Yeah, a lot of people ask me, like, how many tracks did you layer to do that? One. I know I'm known for multi-layered harmonies. I'm the only guy out of New York that ever did that. And I'm proud of, you know, the harmonies uh, or, or um, some of the melodies that led to a harmony became on tracks. You know, it really, really highlighted the vocals in so many songs. But yeah, that buzz cut buzzcock track was strictly one one vocal and that was it you know me trying to be raw but also sing it in my way you know Pete Shelley wasn't the most masculine dude so you know I tried to do it you know the way I would do that it that definitely is your and, take and, on it but it worked 
Yeah, I, I was proud of that record from top to bottom. You know, uh, I know I was making a lot more attempts uh, with that old crash trying to do the multi-layered harmony. And it worked with Three Wishes, but, you know, when I got the chance to do it on some of the tracks on Open Mouth Kiss, I felt better with it. And, you know, I felt I was doing something that no one else could actually do. You I know? mean, that could be said about even Born to Expire and Desperate Measures. I feel like you set a tone that completely blew people away. And it's undoubtedly a, and it's always been funny, like, they'll be like, he's got a real high metal voice. But, I mean, a lot of the New York hardcore now is exactly what you're saying. It's very death metal-y and gargled, so it's equally metal. Yeah, look at all the straight metal bands that do the death yeah. metal voice nowadays but and I, everything else. You know, at least you can hear what I'm pronouncing and emphasizing word for word. I actually had that. You didn't have to guess and say, yo, what did they just say that? <laughs> you know? So now that we're done now that I'm done painstakingly dragging you through your discography, I, I it's important because No, it's important I get because it. There's two sides to you. There's the Eddie, there's the Eddie Leeway, the guy on stage, the guy who gets on the mic and commands a crowd. And then there's the the toil and the struggle to balance and the and the maintain and to still fucking breathe. And for as many hardcore people that have been in shows and many hardcore people that, you know, you know, I I'm not gonna diss any specific band specifically, but there's a lot of hard talk about prison life and shit, but you've been in and out and you've been through the system. And I, I wonder if you could even pinpoint one thing from the time where desperate measures comes out to where you're struggling to make shows happen 10 years later. If you've done any of the work aside from the treatment that you were in to get, to get clean or to fix some of the trauma. Like, I mean, did any point in your 95 therapy and getting clean, did they start talking to you about your trauma or did that, that it have to come later on? Like when did, when did you start addressing the things that got you started using in the first place? I guess is the best way to ask that question. Well, for several years, um, you didn't, I didn't get, enough time with my caseworker or uh, counselor, you know, uh, it was a lot about, you know, getting medicated and pissing clean, you know, maybe you'd get five minutes with the counselor. It wasn't until 2001 when I was past all that, that I went into more therapy and started having a better understanding and I also put more time into educating myself about addiction you know to, to try to really see what was wrong with me and I, I found out it was simple depression but because I had weaknesses I kept falling back into that shit until you know I finally really was getting tired of this and, and move forward. You know, again, you know, uh, when I broke my neck, uh, I was back on morphine for, uh, nine days. 
but because I was so uh, caught up with the pain and everything, I didn't catch another habit. I didn't really go through much re withdrawal. So I was able to still stay beyond that. And uh, I had a great counselor in Long Island, um, Joe Bonifiglio. Um, we stayed friends years after uh, the hurricane that destroyed the whole psychiatric clinic in uh, Long Island. Um, the director of the place was a good man, too. Um, and another guy that became my mentor, we would travel high schools and try to talk to kids to stay out of uh, this this world of drugs and the eventual abuse it will do to you. Um, Greg Marshall passed away about 10 years ago after a stroke. But these people had a, a bigger hold and impression on me than the earlier periods of treatment uh, when I was being medicated that they gave me more to stay humbled and to keep a better perspective. I was, I was learning more about myself, my strengths, as well as my weaknesses for uh, someone that was always in and out of his habit. I became too scared, honestly, to go back to the streets because most of this dope is just fentanyl now. And it's a literal crapshoot to being caught with an overdose and ending up dead. It, it's it's kind of like the Nicorette patch that I keep on my arm while I'm in treatment now because I know if I pick up a cigarette, I'll have a fucking heart attack or I might have a heart attack. So uh, the streets don't appeal to me anymore at this age. I'm not going to go out there and run that risk. But also, it's all fentanyl. It, you know, it's, it's a literal crapshoot. It's only a matter of time. You're going to end up towed and, and overdosed. You'll just be towed up and that's it. That shit is no joke. You know, some people will say that this is China's way of killing some of us off. But I wouldn't want to fuck with fentanyl. I mean, um, my bigger question is throughout this entire time since you started using and now into the part where you're understanding your trauma, do you feel do you feel like it was just somewhat of the product of the way that they addressed abuse and addiction that kept you for decades till you really started uh, fixing your problems? Or do you think even if in the early stages when you first started having a real habit that you wouldn't have been open to treatment if it was available in the way it was in the 90s for you? Well, I wasn't. Whenever I had the chance to go to a hospital for detox, I wouldn't even stay the full seven days. I would sign myself out and, and go run to a spot. You know, uh, I didn't really want the help. But then at some point, 
it just started working for me. And, and a lot of it had to do with being medicated. The depression, so it was a depression was, medication is what you're saying. Uh, the depression medication came after. So what was the, uh, what was the medication that was it? For five years, I was okay. on methadone. I got locked, I got locked up on Rikers for about 35 days. And what they had was a so-called keep program. Uh, whatever dose you were on, they would slowly cut you down over 30 days until there's no more. They weren't going to sit and carry your dosage for as long as you were on Rikers. You know, you were going to have to come off this shit in 30 days and hold your mud. So um, I got home like within 30 days. And even before I came home, I had the opportunity to move with my partner at the time then to Pittsburgh. And that's what I did. So um, I was still going through this shit for another week or two after I got out. But I got out of the city. And I didn't know anybody or anything in Pittsburgh. So that helped me. Within uh, a month, I was fiending, but I went back to New York. I bought a bunch of weed and hightailed it back. And in 2001, I found a doctor who prescribed me with Paxil. And I've been on a low dose of 20 milligrams for 20 years now. And that's what I was talking about earlier without explaining in detail how I've been on an antidepressant that helped uh, put things in order in my mind that it helped me to understand a lot of things more. And then when I moved back to New York in three years... I found these people on Long Island that, that uh, were part of the Long Beach Psych Center that, that I really looked up to. And I guess I was able to relate to my uh, therapist because, you know, he was an Italian dude as well. Um, he never was a part of drugs, but he, he was a damn good therapist. We would go at it at times between him and I. But, you know, I always felt I had more going on with him than I did with anybody else that was part of my treatment through all that time. Those five years into the 95 and 2000, like I told you, it was just medication and piss tests. You know, if you piss clean, you know, you would eventually get more than just the weekend doses you would get more freedom you know and all that shit and uh you know part of me was doing it to seek the goal and part of me wanted to try my best you know but did i really think i had my mind in order before 2001 no no i i was still acting out and even after that uh, in 2006, you know, instead of walking away or turning the other cheek, I was still caught up in violent shit. And it's it's almost like uh, I, I tried to walk away from street life, but 
street life always came back to me, you know, just not without the drugs until I broke my neck. Was there any peers or anybody in New York hardcore or in any kind of structure at that time? And then when you started getting addicted from the late eighties into the nineties that you ever reached out to, or was there any kind of, would you say, if that's not the case, would you say that there was a lot of, um, people around that were using, so it was hard to get clean. Like what was, what do you, what do you, which one do you think it was? Do you think it was, there was no one to reach out to, or do you think it was like a, a den of iniquity? Like, was there, what was the case for you when you were, when you were struggling with your addiction and was a scene, something that you couldn't look out, uh, reach out to. I couldn't reach out to the scene, but one of the early punks was somebody I listened to, and that was uh, Richie Bloom from the dictators. Um, he already had like, uh, 15, 18 years sober. And he was one of the first guys to actually, um, test positive for hep C before I did in like, uh, 2003, 2004, I didn't get treatment until around 2007, but I was able to get it out of my body. Um, I also, in the early 90s, uh, when there was an epidemic in New York City, it was in the subways, as well as Rikers, I tested positive for tuberculosis. And I wonder whether tuberculosis was part of the reason why I caught cancer recently. But Richie Bloom, like I said, already had like 15 years sober and clean. And... uh you know, I was always ashamed when I got one-on-one with him because he was so matter-of-fact and he was dead honest with me. And, you know, I knew I was not ready to even attempt being on his level. You know, that's why I took the usual sucker treatment and got caught up with methadone. And it wasn't until I wound up in Rikers that I had the opportunity to come off it and leave the city to make sure that I really got off the ship, you know? And then by 2001, uh, later into 2001, um, I was able to get on Paxil and that helped me to be a little stronger as far as not going back to there. But, um, you know, I still smoked weed. I still drank. You know what I mean? I wasn't an honor roll uh, recovering addict by far. I, it's interesting because obviously New York hardcore has had heroin around it and in it and deaths. I mean, as famous as Sid Vicious later on, if you want to say Johnny Thunders died that way, or you wanted the conspiracy of the other way, but I, I wonder if it takes time for the scene to realize how to mitigate and how to support someone with an addiction. It's, and um, I don't know where this will sit with you when I ask you, but it's important to say it is, do you feel like there were people in the scene 
who looked at you like a pariah or like once you started you were known using as a heroine and then so you're you're I had a lot to uh you know basically like I had to earn my right back by many but you know there's a lot of people to this day that talk shit about opiate abuse you know because today you know a lot of people are trying not to be on the streets they're trying to use pharmaceutical opiates opioids instead of trying to buy a bag of fentanyl but you know they'll talk mad shit about dope but you know we don't have to say how many dudes are, are doing mad coke you know what I'm saying? Which also is cut you know, and like, laced with sh- different shit. And, and you know, one isn't different from the other, you know. Uh, I'm not going to sit and try to have a discussion with somebody that that, you know, pose is rather hypocritical. You know what I mean? I, I could only help myself. I can't offer anyone advice who doesn't come to me. You know, and normally that's nobody from New York, you know, they're like me. They know better, right? And they just keep doing what they do. Uh, You know, it's got to be someone who actually looks up to me that reaches out, that is going to listen to me. And, you know, I hope I could offer a little bit of advice to them to get them on, on a better track, you know. So something that we talked about in an episode with Juice was embedded in Eddie Sutton lore. And I know you're going to crack up. We talk about this one. So we have Marauder played this hardcore in 2010 and Truth and Rights played in 2010. And Mm -hmm. the last thing that happened, though when I say the last thing, I mean the last phone call that ended the chapter of 2010 was you calling me about the drummer who had the drug issue. And you saw him in the bus station and you were trying to get him help. And yes, so I tailored this entire conversation to as you're talking about how you were getting better and you began learning how to help people who were in these problems. And so for those listening and hear the whole story, go to the juice episode. And it's it's funny to me because. Who told the uh, story? Me and exactly. Juice talked about it because because yeah. Juice was a big part of the, it is a big part of this hardcore from the website to all the graphics and then the day of he's my right hand man in the production and the things and especially right. in the small venue it was he and I and the R five guys only so Juice was there from the minute we packed up everything to bring it to the venue and he was the one loading out the venue and so you gave me this call and you're like Joe. I just want to let you know I'm sitting with this guy and we're going to get him right. And I'm going to hook him up with his family. And I, and I asked you the pariah question because I remember being like, oh man, Eddie's fucking killing it. You know, like Eddie's fucking got a new band and he's playing with my boy, Zach. Like I was so excited. And then, you know, you had, you did have people say like, oh, well, you know, he was a fucking this and that. And I'm like, whatever. I fucking love leeway. I want to see truth and rights. So the last thing that I was left with, from 2010, this is hardcore. Was you after midnight counseling somebody and trying to get their lives together? And and it, it says 
it says nothing but leagues of growth from the time period 20 years back when you were using around the time of desperate measures to you're in a new band, you're playing one of your first shows and it's after midnight on a Sunday and you're helping somebody who's going through a terrible time. And I wonder how that felt for you to be able to give back to somebody. And it had, you had to have related to the moments that we talked about on this podcast where you're playing shows and using and all that. So I just want you to get some time to talk about that if you can. Well, day two into the fest, he was coming around the outside of the show, touching with people who remembered him from the set, Yeah, right? And he was, you know, trying to get a hand out or a loan that he'll take care of one way or another. And you had to get on stage to put an end to that so nobody else would get used you know what I mean? And then the weekend ended uh, before I made my way back to New York. Uh, I went and had a couple of beers and then I went to the Greyhound station and who do I run into? And, uh, you know, as much as I was able to get him to sit and talk with me for a minute, he obviously felt mad shame. But when you're in the throes of like a base or crack addiction. I was strictly a dope fiend. I, I, I was never really into that shit. But when you're in the middle of a cocaine high, you just want to keep going. You know, every 10 minutes a hit, everything, you know, whether it's powder or base. And he was very ashamed. And uh, he didn't have a phone. So I asked him to give me his girlfriend's number. She helped put me through with his mom. And I couldn't really do anything from him uh, after I got on my bus home. So I told his mom, look, he's here. He's broke. He's relapsed. He needs a ticket home. He's in Philly. Contact the Philly station, uh, bus station and, and get him a ticket so he could get home. And... Uh, that's what I did. And the dude was very, very uh, grateful that I took the time for him because he kind of felt like everybody was out to get him. You know, he felt like Frankenstein being chased from the villages. He didn't know what was going to happen. So uh, he was grateful that I took the time out because I had the time. And, and it's the least I can do. It's not like he's a stranger. You know, we talk... We talked before and after his set, before he went off the rails, you know, and, um, you know, I was glad to do that. And, and, you know, it made me feel good, you know, to be able to help a fellow addict when they're in the throes of something is what we're supposed to do after we get ourselves back together. You know, I, I don't think there's an addict would tell you differently, you know, whether they're going to, you know, give out food at a soup kitchen, volunteer and and do AA or NA. But to be able to connect with somebody who's in the throes of their addiction after a three day event, we're not just talking about somebody I know from the hole in the ground that's been in Philly for a week and I just ran into him. You know what I mean? I knew he was up here 
but he put himself here. And, and I just wanted to do the right thing. And, and, you know, I was doing it for myself as well as doing it for him, you know, to try to give back, you know, that's something I always felt. I, I, at a couple of times thought of becoming a counselor, but it's all bullshit in the system. Like I said, it's all paperwork and PP tests. There's not real help. You don't really spend enough time with your cases. In New York State, uh, they have twice as many cases per counselor than they're supposed to actually have. You know what I mean? So it's a system that makes pretty much everybody in it jaded, you know, like something more concrete, like having moments like this or giving advice to somebody who's reaching out to me is just the better way for me to give or share, you know, but again, I'm not a sober man, bro. You know, I'll smoke weed. I haven't since I caught cancer, you know, but there's tincture, you know, you can cook with it. And, uh, you know, I'll have a drink once in a while. I don't know if you need to be sober to guide someone. I think, I think you, well, I lot, think a lot of people would feel well, differently in, in that world. You know, they're like, oh, you ain't doing it. If yeah, you're but I sober. think you had clarity of mind and the experience and you, what his situation was, you resonated enough with that you were able to impart not only solid wisdom to him, but you were able to affect his life in a really positive way at a, at a really dark point. So, uh, you know, no one drug tested you before you gave that information. No one was like, oh, did you have a beer? Are you allowed to say this? Um, yeah. And and that speaks calibers. Uh, that speaks to the caliber of who you are to me. You know, that speaks to uh, – when I when we had our first conversation on the telephone about this hardcore two thousand six, I I always say that like it was great because you're like asking me like what qualifications do I have to run a festival, and I actually deserved to get asked that. Yeah, did I? Yeah, because you guys did were I? set to play a show. I heard that you guys might be playing in August, and we were looking to do a bill, but you had billed it either the week before or the week after hours, and we talked on the phone, and you're like, all right, well. Unfortunately, this is the only weekend that was available. When I went and talked to somebody about it, they're like, "Do you know how many times Leeway's been fucked over? Do you know how many t- like, do you know how many different times like, do you know how many different promises weren't made, guarantees that weren't kept?" And it put me in a perspective that it's like, okay, if I don't get them this year, I'm gonna get them. And through all the different times that we were together, and you know whether it was having with truth and rights, and I mean, there's a time when you guys still in that crazy ass snowstorm came and played what was one of the most fun shows we ever had Manball, leeway and wisdom and chains. And you've always wow. been someone who could see the positive. I've never seen you. I mean, you, you called me one time when you, we couldn't get it together when you were trying to do the Eddie leeway show to play with Marauder and you were bummed out. And I'm like, dude, don't worry. We'll always be another time. And something that stuck with me is since, your cancer treatments began is that I, I really wanted to make sure that we and you could have another good conversation and that people can understand where you come from as a person, because it, it, it behooves me to say this a lot of times hardcore scene is easy to take one transgression and let that be the 
opening and covering statement of the person's entire career and personality. And there's so much more depth to what you've done. And I just like to ask you some questions that are like more shorter or might want to say shorter, but maybe just things you can answer easier than some of these deeper ones. Well, the majority of us, and yes, um, you know, we're all flawed. We're, we're all complex, you know, and, and just because I was strung out in the streets for a period of time or years, um, you know, did I ever hurt you troll on the internet? Did I ever hurt you? No, no. But here you are trying to knock me down. And you don't even really fucking know me. You yeah. know, you know, if, if if we really need to go to it, you know, like I told this one kid who called me a clown. Well, listen, man, the next time I'm in town, come up, say hello, and we could clown around. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? You know, I never heard from him again. But, you know, I would have clowned around with him. I would have shown him what a fucking clown I was. Oh. You know well, what I mean? You always, you always, did, did, you always, did, 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 you always did, kept did. it directly real. And I, <laughs> I've heard some wild stories. And I like, I know it's a funny thing because of the fact is, you know, you're a smaller guy, but there's no, there's no fucks given if it comes down to it. You got to be quicker than me. Um, I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to sit and try to box you, but. Don't let me get something, you know, that's, that's really what ends up happening all the time because, you know, I don't, I don't travel with a fucking octagon, <laughs> you know what I mean? So why are you trying to put me in the ring? Yeah. You know, it's, it's just fucking stupid. You know, I came to do a gig, try to make a little positivity you know, I'm definitely willing to help somebody out in need, you know. Um, uh, th is it this what we're supposed to be? Flawed or not? Yeah. You know, so go ahead, you know. That's enough of me uh, bearing my oats and being cocky. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. What band do you think early on gave your band the most help and support? Bad Brains, from as early as 1986, and what they gave us in 89, and then even into the 90s in Europe, as well as other areas after the Quickness tour. Nobody did more for this band than Bad Brains. I don't think there's any band out there that could say they've done 100-plus shows with them, you know? And I got to be a part of the original Bad Brains. I, I, we were the only band that did a full uh, tour with the original Bad Brains because most bands either got kicked off or couldn't survive the length of the tour for some reason or another. What was it like? Because there's so many people, you know, even my age, I missed that tour. I was too young. What was it like as a support act? when a band was at like a cresting zenith, like a, like a monumental moment to see it every night. And were you cognizant of that? This is like a moment that people will still talk about. Yeah, because you know, the bad brains were the Beatles of this thing of ours, you know, that level, they were that much in awe by their fans. I used to watch how, 
I used to watch how like two guys would show up, come on the bus and meet HR, and give him like a quarter ounce of this really super duper bud. And he'd be like, yes, Rasta. I yes, Rasta. And then he would just go disappear, <laughs> you know. But then I would see Earl out in front, you know, looking to run into friends or past acquaintances to make sure they got in on the guest list as well. You know, I don't want to diss, you know, HR like that. But, you know, he, he was just playing the game. They they wanted something from him and he wanted something yeah, they, from they them. Got their, they got you their know, moment. He, they got their HR moment. Yeah, like, you know, he's a DC, you know, black dude. So, you know, can you imagine what he experienced? You know, it was like, uh, you know, get something or get taken. You know, that's that's what a, the environment a lot of these guys grew up in, you know. And I heard somebody talking about that. I actually it was Charles Manson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Rob Zombie narrated uh, the last documentary. It's called The Last Word. And, you know, uh, Manson was like, you know, I don't trust anybody. You know, they're stealing from me, you know, but I'm allowing them to steal from me. You know, it was this whole story of trade-off and, and that, like, you know, they want from me and I'll take from them too, you know, more or less. Because that dude was institutionalized from like nine years old until he was uh, 28. You know, he didn't know anything other than being on the inside. There's this there's this whole you book know? that came out in the uh, the world of the Joe Rogan stuff where someone had written quite a bit about his connections in the CIA. And I'll, and I'll send a link to it. it it's it's absolutely yeah. unreal. Um, absolutely. Do you believe it? it, it the guy, the okay. research is there. It's not like a, it's not supposition. It's, it's, it has some moments of legitimacy in the way that he was arrested multiple times where by the statutes in the state of California, legally, he should be immediately remanded to a prison. And time and time again, he was allowed of his own recognizance. And as a felon myself, <laughs> you know, and being on paper, there's sometimes you get arrested and he, you ain't getting out on the street. And he has quite a few arrests in the time frame when he was active in the family where he should have been put right to bars because it was a uh, record. And they let, they let him back out. Mm. And for reasons that we have to draw our own conclusions on. Yeah. And, and he, uh, you know, had an idea of the understand of Scientology, a bit of the yeah. process and and he's a well-read he was a well-read and articulate guy you can't you can't sleep no. on him even up until the day he died man like the dude as as crazy as he speaks in riddle he's making more clarity than a professor and no English. he's a he was enigmatic yeah. an enigmatic figure of my childhood because i was born in 1980 so i don't think there was a week where he wasn't something manson wasn't on tv growing up and i've read yeah helped i was saying i'm sorry go i was ahead. saying is uh i from the earliest ages of being able to read books and watch movies like that were older i mean from the time we were able to get to the library with my mom when she was studying for a ged 
those kind of books just blew my fucking mind. Just blew my mind, and it's still yeah. still a part of cult, a cult and culture figure. That when a new book comes out, I, I read it just because. Until this just book just came out in the last two years, I w- I had a completely different idea of what kind of person he was. Yeah, um, and I think differently of him from Helter Skelter because of what Bobby Boussoulet said in his documentary, as well as uh, Capistrano. Um, you didn't hear from the usual suspects like uh, um, Sandra Good or Squeaky, you know, the same ones you'd see regenerated over time. There was a lot of other people who got the chance to talk. Uh, the last word, 2017. And they basically break down that things really started re- degenerating after Tex Watson came back to spawn asking for help with uh, lots of love, Bernard Crow, and that whole uh, 25 kilo deal of weed that he was in. And, uh, you know, uh, Bernard Crow tied up his girlfriend and he went running back to Charlie and Charlie wound up shooting this dude and now he fears like this guy's claims of he's got Black Panther connects. So now he's got to do all this other shit. Bobby Boussoulet gets caught up uh, with the drug deal with the straight Satans who Charlie now asked to stay uh, in spawn um, and they could have their way with the girls, you know, because the girls were giving it for free anyway. Um, from there, the straight Satans got on Boussoulet claiming the mescaline was bunk. So that's when they went to Gary Hinman's house. Uh, him and Hinman fought over a gun that Hinman uh, pulled out on Boussoulet. And that's when, you know, they finally, uh, Bobby finally gets control of the gun, ties up Hinman. Charlie comes in, slashes him, nearly cuts half his ear off. And Abusley realizes he's got to kill him and because uh, if he lets him live, he's going to call the cops on him. So now you got the shooting of Crow, even though he says but the death of Hinman. Bobby gets busted driving one of Hinman's cars. So now he's charged with the Hinman murder. So they claim that Tate and LaBianca atrocities were done to make the cops think the killer from Hinman was still on the loose, you know, because that's when the signs in blood started with political piggy, the black uh, panther paw, the whole shit. Then after Bobby gets busted, um, Kasabian goes to visit him in jail and says, don't say nothing, you know, we got this. And they assumed that they were going to get him out of jail. But it just turned into a complete spiral, and it all fell apart. And nobody claims Charlie was the leader of the family in this documentary. No, I, I you think know? the there's so much to there's so much to the the overall culture at that time that I wouldn't I I would suggest anyone listening 
I'm going to post this link just because this book is so fucking fantastic and goes into so much depth to the, the hate Asbury clinic. And this is stuff that Joe Rogan talks about. I don't want to echo what he says, but it was from his show that we read the book Got it. and the book just is absolutely fucking unreal. And I have to wonder how much you see in the early eighties punk and metal that had to be inspired by Manson. So we're on the Manson topic. Yeah, of course, you know, but again, um, because from nine to 28, he was incarcerated, you know, that doesn't turn anybody into a social. I mean, he was, he was, he was in one of the worst Midwest prisons period, sexually abused, corporally abused by the, by the guards. Like there's not much of a human or, and not much of a way that you could become a regular upstanding part of society in the early sixties after that kind of uh, upbringing. But, um, yeah, it, well, let's keep going. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to wind up running out of juice. in this. <laughs> All right. So I got, of- I got two more that are uh, pertinent to you and your growth. Okay. You grew, you grew up and around New York and New York hardcore. And don't forget, my father was in the life. La Cosa Nostra didn't make him because he was a fucking cowboy. You know, my dad became a drug addict while running a chop shop and a tow truck company. And uh, he eventually started robbing serious drug dealers. You know, uh, it's not something I'm proud of, but I learned more and more as I got older from his running partner. Huh. And uh, it's cathartic to discuss and and i'm hoping i get it right when i finish this fucking autobiography i mean that i wonder if your father had not been in life do you think you would had a do you think if he was not in that life that you had a better chance to reach out to him when you were using yeah because you know i never had closure with him uh before he passed away in 2006 if he didn't screw up with my mom and you know had like a girlfriend or gumad whatever you want to call it um they probably would have lasted a little bit longer i could have matured a little bit longer and i would have had a little bit more uh honor for him that i would have had closure sooner than i did because i stopped talking to him when i was 11. and when he died it was 2006 so i was like 41. All right, I'm going to leave you with this one because I know you're going to get ready to wrap up. It's impossible to say, hey, if you can go back and change things, everyone's going to always say that they would, of course, change the things that are bad. But I'm, what I would like to know is, do you feel in the place that you are in your life that you've grown from the mistakes that you've made and that you're able to help people who are going through the same problems, whether it's a band and they've got a shitty deal coming their way, or it's someone using, do you feel that through your own struggle and your own, you know, rise, fall and recovery that you're able to say that you learn from these mistakes and then shelter and help people who are going through the same problems that you went through throughout your twenties and thirties? Maybe people don't think I'm qualified, but I'm always willing to help. You, you know, if somebody reaches out to me, I'm going to reply to them. I'm not going to bullshit them. You know, this thing of ours was not supposed to have a rock star air or attitude. 
You know what I mean? Did I learn from my mistakes? Yes. Do I try to avoid the same trappings today? Yes. You know, I've got more things to do. You know, I've got chemo. You know, I've got a family to be a part of. I've got my mom to look out for. My sisters, my sisters are doing a phenomenal job looking out for me during all this recently. Um, you know, yes, yes, and yes. You know, but you know, does does someone say, "Oh, he's not qualified. He didn't spend two years in liberal arts." You know, no, I lived it, motherfucker. That's the difference between you and me. I don't have the degree. I sweated in the degrees. <laughs> With all your lived advice, uh, do you have any rules of life that you give people? No. You know, only because as much as I'm willing to offer advice and everything like that, uh, it's a take it or leave it thing. I may not be... Uh, your guru, you know what I mean? I'm willing to help, but it's up to you whether you take it to heart or deem it bullshit. I, I, I really can't uh, put it any other way, you know what I mean? You know, it's like I'm in it, but also at the same time, uh, you know, you may not take to heart what I'm trying to offer. Or, or help. Yeah, I with. think a lot of people who need the advice may not be ready to either act on it or listen to it properly. So it's impossible just to offer. Yeah, I wasn't listening for many years. You know what I mean? You could have shook me. You could have thrown me down a flight of stairs and I still didn't wake up, you know? Well, well listen to your story. I, I, just, I, I just love that you have the ability to look at things and the way that you have and showcase your ability to get past it. And I know, cause we've talked on text and I know you have a lot more planned. So uh, leave us with what you have going on post chemo. Talk about your podcast. Let us know how we can get in contact with you and just thank you for everything, man. Thank you for giving us a shot to show you that the hardcore scene still loved you. And every time you've been here, in the last couple of years, it's been absolutely fantastic. In fact, I, I, I've never seen, like we have, we had that Thursday show at underground arts. I've never seen a headlining band look at each other. Like, like, fuck, we got to follow that. That was actually one of the greatest. And I just appreciate you as a friend. I, I love what you did for hardcore. And this conversation was awesome. And just thank you for your time. And I, you know, that we're here with you through your entire fight to beat this cancer, man. Well, my love and respect to you because you've said things to me that I've always kept in mind and in heart. Uh, the Eddie Leeway podcast, it's as simple as that. You can find me on Instagram as Eddie underscore Leeway. Uh, I also got a baseball cards page on Instagram, Eddie's BB cards, but I'm sure you don't collect baseball cards. Um there's also uh, the Eddie Leeway podcast Instagram page. Um, we're on YouTube. We're starting to be more consistent, having releases every seven to 10 days. Um, 
and I'm really looking forward to finally getting this shit back together again. Um, my love and respect to everybody who's reached out or even donated while I've gone through this cancer thing. And I promise you, just like the doctors said, it's treatable. I'm going to get past this. I intend to record again before I even plan to tour again. But I expect, you know, I'll have opportunities to play one-offs, uh, you know, between here and your neck of the woods. You know, talk to me down the line. And I'd be more than happy to show up. You know, is this T-I-H-C um, on? It is on. Year? There is three alternate ideas, depending upon... The who, what, where, when, and why, and we're gonna know very shortly. And if we can, if you're able to do it, I'll make sure it's, you'll be there at least in spirit, if not on stage. One or the other, I'm happy with whatever you can make happen. I'm there, and uh, that's pretty much it. You know, I'm hoping I can really uh, get this autobiography completed in some time. But Laz wants me to. <laughs> Um, he wants me to record the uh, stories from recently. Um, there's a medication I take at night called Trazodone. It's really a sleep med, but some people take it for uh, anti-depression. I don't know how to fucking do it, but you get, I get the craziest dreams. So he wants me to record the dreams when I head up north, you know, as part of like a prelude to completing this autobiography. You know, originally, honestly, Joe, I thought I had the happy ending from the last time I uh, played the main stage and I first met Carol Lee in my life. Um, I thought I had a happy ending, but as I've been kind of uh, procrastinating finishing this book, I wound up getting sick. So I have to get through this so there's a happy ending to the book. But what I'm trying to do is not just talk, tell my story from birth to present. You know, I wanted to break up because, you know, like events like this is hardcore or uh, things that I recently experienced with my family. I want the timelines to jump around. You know what I mean? Instead of it Linear. being from... You know, yeah, yeah. I want to do a better job because some people have released uh, books. I want to try to do better. I want to one-up it, you know. I've got to learn from them, so I should be able to take it to another level. That's my attempt. And, uh, you know, check out the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me. I, I talk with everybody. And thank uh, you, Eddie, Joe. thank you so I much, really man. And uh, I'm going to stick with you. I'll be hitting you up just making sure everything's going with the treatment. We're going to link everything and we're going to link everything thank at tiacpodcast.com. So go support his podcast, support his bands, and continue to pray for him. And we still have the GoFundMe link at the This Is Hardcore Instagram bio. Eddie, thank you for coming on the show. You're the man, dude. And this is, was one of my favorites ever. Thank you, Yosef. You're such a mensch. <laughs> There we go. Probably one of my favorite conversations I've had on this show. There's so much depth to him, and there is a lot to be said about him being able to not only overcome the adversity of heroin addiction and to have such a long conversation while getting 
through chemo treatments, but also just how he survived socially. You know, it's got to be something to wear on you when for decades people are talking about you nefariously. And as he said, there was a, there was a moment where he was a pariah and he had, he's outlived that now. And he seems to be someone that really wants to reach out and help. And like we told that story about him, he really is the kind of guy who will give that person the chance because he knows what it was like to be in that bad spot. And to me, that's a story of redemption. And for those of you who are wondering, like, oh, what's going to happen with Leeway? There was that moment when they were recording stuff with Dan Anastasi. There's this awesome song called I'm Your Pusher. It's, like, absolutely fucking fantastic. There's nothing cooler than when a band goes back and records stuff that brings you right back to the old times with a nice little new touch. But one thing's for certain is Eddie has a lot going on. The Eddie Leeway podcast, he's got the band stuff going. Um, actually, I didn't tell it on the story, but it's really cool. Is A couple years ago, he was working on a studio where he was like, fuck playing shows. I'm going to do this green screen, and we're going to fucking have pay-per-view shows. And I thought he was crazy, and little do we know, he was just five years ahead of COVID and thought about this shit ahead of time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to support these shows. Follow us at Philly HC Shows on Instagram and Twitter and the dot com. If you want to support the podcast, it's simple. Patreon.com slash this is hardcore. We got another rule of three podcast gonna get ready to come out. More podcasts coming out every week. Support, 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 support. And I'll see you at the beginning of these shows. Take care. <laughs>